Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. My whole life has been nothing but a hole where my podcast should have been. It always left me aching, but I never thought about what it did to you. I, okay. d- I don't have a Dakota. Uh, no, I'd be impressed if you did. Yeah. Is this the last, like, this is sort of the end of the run of child Dakota, Look, right? This is unfortunately all I want. All I was thinking about for most of the, I was like, man, the Dakota star arc is, is weird. Yes. We're this is dig the end it. of, of, uh, young Dakota, I guess, because right. next year is New Moon, and then that, the year after right. that is the Runaways, and I feel like that's when it's like she's a you know a grown up star. She be- right, but she becomes supporting, or if she's lead, it's in much smaller films. But this is the end of this insane run in yep. which, like, not even like Macaulay Culkin, but where a small girl became like a prestige highbrow movie star. It, it it's a weird it's a weird thing um, there look there are a lot of career also, arcs to talk about here yes there are but what were you gonna say it's also it's just it's also just funny that like she was like you know one of the big kid actresses when you know in the 2000s and she's still around but her sister is the one who got famous in a way i feel really bad about that it's odd <laughs> i don't know yes. like it's it's, like yeah. I remember Elle playing baby Dakota in I Am Sam, the movie mm-hmm. that like launched the Dakota fanning thing. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, that was, it was just a little fact. It was like, oh yeah, and she has a little sister who looks like like looks like her. You know, she played little baby her. And and I am a noted Elle stan. I've talked mm. about her a lot on this podcast when she comes up. I think she's a great actress. It is weird how Dakota has just sort of become the the secondary fanning. Yeah, that's what I'm Des- saying. It's despite odd. still working. I mean, it's not She's like she working. backed away. Um they were a mid-production in that there was the film, what's it called? I don't it know. It might it might be called The Nightingale also, but it was uh Melanie Laurent directing Yes, Dakota it's the and Elle Fanning. Oh, the World War II movie? Or is that a yes. different... Yeah. And okay. it was it's supposed to movie, be yes. a big Oscar release at the end of this year. And then obviously production got shut down. And now they don't know when it will resume. But I was excited about that movie. A, because I like Melanie Laurent as a director. And B, because I like the idea of putting both of the Fannings in there. I feel like it's time for a real Dakota surge. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, fine. I, I support it. I like Dakota. She's she seems nice. She's good. Chris White says she uh, was so great. Once upon a time in Hollywood, she's good in that. Like all her small yep. appearances, she's been good in. She's good in the Twilight movies. She's yeah. She's good. She is she's, good in uh, the Twilight movies. She is. She's a little creepy person. I, I vaguely remember it. I haven't seen her. She's one of the 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 Sheen. She's a Volturi. Yes. She's the Volturi. I just right. watched cool New Italian Moon like vampires. two days ago. Right, it's it's Michael Sheen, Dakota Fanning, and the pretty boy from Sweeney Todd. Jamie something. Oh, Jamie Campbell Bauer. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, as someone who has watched the closing credits of Breaking Dawn Part Two many times, it's one of your favorite videos. 
Yes, I love the, the closing credits set to what's that song? I can't remember. Yeah, that. I know everyone da, who is in the Twilight. A movies. thousand. That years. one, a thousand years song. Da, That's da, da, it. Um, we'll we'll dig into all of this because, of course, this is a podcast called Blank Check. It's about filmographies. Directors who have massive success early on in their career and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want, which doesn't really apply with this career, but kind of does sideways. This is it's a mini series on the films of Gina Prince Bythewood. Mm-hmm. The mini series is called Pod and Basket Cast. And today we're talking about is this her highest grossing film? Yes, I believe so. Uh, the Secret Life of Bees. I mean, unless you count um, Netflix saying that, you know, a billion good gajillion people watch The Old Guard. Yeah, I, I'm looking here. There's a new Netflix update. Apparently, everyone who has ever died yes. in the spirit realm has also watched right. The Old Guard. That's right. That's right. Yes, it has uh, one quadrillion views. I, look. On the record, not to get ahead of ourselves, I love the old guard. I'm very happy if it's doing well. It's a little bit weird that, like, early in a week, Netflix releases, here are our top 10 most watched movies of all time. And they put that list out, and old guard is not on it. And then two days later, they're like, never mind, old guard is the most popular movie ever. So, number one. Uh, our guest today, returning. And uh, sounded like she had something to say about Netflix statistics. So I want to introduce her so she can dig into this. Uh, From the Bad Romance podcast, from uh, Browse Held High, new podcast on Patreon. Uh, Great film critic, uh, great friend of the show, Jordan Searles. Uh, What do you want to say about Netflix's dodgy numbers? I don't... I don't understand Netflix's film model. I think that that's all I was going to say. I don't really get their numbers. I don't really, but I don't really understand Netflix as a brand at nope. all. But you know, whatever. Sure, they're they're hemorrhaging money. I'm sure. I don't know. Well, I look. I have been a, a not. I don't want to say a Netflix truther, but I've been a a person who, for the last couple of years, is like Netflix is no pun intended a house of cards that might collapse within two years. Like it it was built upon just like uh, increasing amounts of debt, outspending everyone else in the hopes that they could outlast everyone else just long enough. Like much like what happened with Amazon, where Amazon like was losing money every year until Jeff Bezos became the richest man in the world. What a great, great reality we live in. Sure. That, That was the model that Netflix was chasing. I think actually the pandemic has saved them. Like, I think their subscriber rate has gone up so high and now all these other streaming services launching are bombing in a way that Netflix might have been given the Hail Mary pass by our broken world. Unfortunately, I've written about this too much and people who know more about the stock market have gotten in touch with me and said like Netflix was never in trouble. It's the same thing as Amazon where it's like, I look at it and I'm like, this makes no sense. They don't make money and they lose more money every so year. So much debt. So much debt. Right. People yeah, don't understand it, how much. Yeah, but debt you can like just that. sell the debt. I mean, like every, like everyone is just like, no. I mean, you, it's the it's the Amazon story. It's just like, no, they they know <sighs> yeah. what they're doing. Nothing Capitalism's matters. weird. Nothing matters. I also think Jordan, like Netflix, made the decision because when they started out, it was like, wait a second, are they going to be streaming HBO? 
are they going to be like prestige? There's a high level of quality, no, they're high level of talent. Not even. They're Walmart. They're right. like, it's our brand everything. is Walmart. It's just everything for cheap. Yeah. Which is, I, I, which reminds me, I tried to watch something on Voodoo last night and I was just like, absolutely not. Everything about Voodoo, like, is offensive to me personally. <laughs> But I did see that they, uh, I don't know if you were aware of this, but Voodoo, it's probably canceled now, but Voodoo like launched a show, which means that Walmart launched mm-hmm. a show and it was like a Mr. Mom sitcom starring so Hayes glad. MacArthur. Yes, and I was going to bring this up. Yes. And I feel so bad for Hayes MacArthur every single time I think about it. I'm just like, he's a funny guy. I don't want this for him. Wait, is, is Voodoo <laughs> owned by Walmart? I don't think yes. I knew that. Yes. Voodoo, wow. Voodoo is a Walmart streaming service. Wow. But they I mean, just I, I, I see sold it. it off. Walmart sold it to Fandango. So, like, I feel additionally bad for Hayes MacArthur because not only are you on a Mr. Mom reboot on a streaming platform, that borderline doesn't exist where no one knows there's any level of original content. But also it was one of those things where Walmart was like, we're going to make a ton of shows. Walmart is going to be making shows. And then they made that one show and they're like, we're kind of out of the making show business, but here's one show as a remnant of that. And then they sold the whole platform. Hmm. Uh, wow. There's so many of these platforms. It's so weird. Yeah. Voodoo. It's always being pushed on me. They're always like, don't you want to check out, Voodoo. And then I look at it. It's just another way to watch movies. Just logging into Voodoo pissed me off. (laughs) Well, there's their their on screen keyboard is is blue because it's Walmart, but the contrast with the letters is not good. And I just couldn't find the fucking letters. And I was just cussing the entire time. And then by the time I got to it, like the movie that I wanted, I still had to pay money. It's like, I can rent this on YouTube. I didn't need to do this. <laughs> the, the value of voodoo. If ah, I can value. call it that the voodoo value, the V squared mm. was this, this hack. It's not even really a hack, but the, the sort of the value was, uh, movies anywhere, which links together your purchases from any platform to every other platform, was compatible with Voodoo. It still is, but th- it seems like they're nerfing this feature a little bit in terms of limiting what you can do it with. They had a thing for a while where if you scan the barcode of a movie you own, you could then uh. get it on digital for Voodoo for only $2. Sure. And then you'd get it on iTunes through movies anywhere. But also all it mattered was that you were scanning the barcode from your home in terms of location, your zip code. But you could pull up a photo of a barcode on your computer and take a photo of that on your camera phone. You've already lost me halfway just like describing it. This does seem very hackable. I mean, look, I made out like a bandit. I, I got a robust <laughs> voodoo library, which slid over to my iTunes library. But now I have no value for voodoo anymore. Wow. Anyway, voodoo this valueless. is uh, that voodoo that you do, our podcast about voodoo. <laughs> yeah. no, I don't think so. Yes, it is. It's a voodoo podcast. <laughs> voodoo bought us, David. A voodoo could buy us. They, they could make an offer. I just, I, you know, I want to hear. I would put a number on it, you know. Uh, no, this is a miniseries on the films of Gina Prince-Bythewood, and we're talking about The Secret Life 
of Bees, a film that weirdly I feel like is the, the movie that gets forgotten about in her canon. Like people forget that she made this, but as we said, is her, her biggest film. It's her highest grossing film, and it's probably the one that got the biggest sort of like Oscar-y kind of push. Like, you know, yeah. it had your classic. It was a Fox Searchlight movie. It came out in the fall. They premiered it at um, the Toronto Film Festival, you know, like based on a book, a best-selling book. Right. Um, Beyond the Lights oomph. and Love and Basketball were not viewed as sort of serious awards-y movies. And Which this is was weird very- because Beyond the Lights is like a serious awards-y movie. Like it when is, you and watch it, rules. it that's what it is. It is the most classical Hollywood awards movie. And yeah. David and I have argued about this for years. I think it's just better earlier Star is Born. And it was very perplexing to me to watch Beyond the Lights get roundly ignored. And then five years later, everyone flip out over Star is Born, which I don't dislike. And no, yeah, no, I totally understand. I, I really like Beyond the Lights and I really like Love A it. Star is Born. And I agree with you. And I've also seen all the other versions of A Star is yeah. Born. So, yeah, I mean, it does. It does fit in. I don't know. Maybe it's I'm trying to figure out what could have gone wrong with it, because I mean, all of the ingredients are there, I guess. It's- just it's issue lack of stars, I think, was its issue. Um, I, I obviously, stars born I would had say, the big yes. star power thing. Two so they, thing. They, it was sold kind of. It, it wasn't really sold well, right? She hung a movie on two people who were not named stars at that point in time, which is already an uphill battle. Um, and it wasn't positioned like they didn't send it to festivals. No, they no, just they did. It was it, it was the opening really? night movie at Toronto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beyond the Lights was. Yeah. I had no idea. See, yeah, I just remember movie. it sort of just being like dropped wide release opening well, weekend that they didn't really push it like it was. And well, it was like, relativity, which was the a other weird I was little say. studio that was relativity sort of like was to stick about out. to go under. Like this is right when relativity is spiraling and collapsing and Ryan. So Kavanaugh I think that was, was also an issue, right. but it was a well review. I think in terms of it, not sticking with audiences like, yeah, it premiered at Thanksgiving time and it didn't have big stars. And even though it was well-reviewed for whatever reason, people just kind of ignored it, uh, which is rude because it is great. And I can't wait to rewatch it. I can't wait. Um, I also, it's actually my favorite movie from her. Absolutely. Uh, I think it might be, mm, I'm not sure. Mm, I'm going to have to rewatch. I'm not sure. But I'm also very weirdly not a love and basketball fan. I feel like. (laughs) Interesting. And it's a real, yeah, I don't, I don't know why. Like there are things about it that I really enjoy. And Sana Lathan is, I'll watch her do anything. I met her once and my my glasses were broken and it was just like it was like <laughs> the fate came together to put me in this weird position where I got to meet such a beautiful woman with my glasses like literally falling off my face like I had like tape and I had like positioned the arm and the arm was coming off and anyway she was very very nice and said that she liked my name and she's very very beautiful but I don't know I broke my glasses <laughs> She she is very beautiful. My favorite actor of all time, Philip Seymour Hoffman. The one time I got to meet him, I was an intern in the production offices of uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which that whole movie was shot on sound stages. So like the actors would come into the office a lot, but he's so intense and like in his bubble that he wouldn't. And he came in. It was like a half day where he wrapped early because Sidney Lumet always wanted to 
go to the Hamptons on Fridays and he'd work so fast that they would wrap at lunch. So I was eating lunch at my desk and I was like the lowest ranking intern. So I was the desk closest to the door so I could like weed out the, the chaff or whatever. And I was eating corn on the cob. So wow. my hands were wow. covered in butter Wow. And Philip Seymour Hoffman comes in in like sweats, like top to bottom sweats, pants, top. And he's gotten like he's wrapped for the day. He's finished his acting and it looks like someone just performed an exorcism on him. Like he's <laughs> drenched in sweat and his like soul is out of his body. Like he's just like, I've given myself to my craft. I'm done. And he comes in and he's like doing like full Philip Seymour Hoffman, like befuddled sort of thing. And he goes like, uh, uh, d- d- uh do you? Do you have a pen? I I need to uh, write something down. My bad Philip Seymour Hoffman impression. And I'm just holding corn on the cob like Bugs Bunny, <laughs> like eating it like a typewriter. Butter you dripping give him the down my face and my hands. And I went, yeah, there's a pen right there. You can just grab it for yourself. And I was trying to say, you don't want me to hand you a pen because mm. I'm a butter boy. Right, I got but you're, literal you're, butter You're sounding fingers. like you're like, what am I? Your pen person? Go, the right. pen's over there. Right. And he went, oh, OK. And like took wow. the pen and walked away. And I was like, wow, what a terrible interaction. Someday I'll get to <laughs> I'll get to restore. I'll be able to share this as an anecdote. Yeah. Um, yeah. Terrible. I just feel like you always meet the best people under the worst circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not really. I was. I was actually. That was like a the day that I met Sanal. I was doing press for God. What is that movie that no one saw? The new Native Son. Yeah. Oh, I went. I yeah. interviewed the whole cast, and it's like a really interesting cast full of like yeah. people that like you know like Ashton Sanders and stuff. But it was just weird doing press for a movie that no one watched, and it ultimately and, ended up no one watching. The, the only thing I remember from that was. The premiere of Sundance last year. And it got bought by HBO for a bajillion dollars before yep. it we even got to see it. Like we were walking into the theater and we already know like HBO bought this. And we're like, okay. And then I remember this the the screen lights up, they show the Sundance pre-roll, and then the HBO films logo plays and they had announced it that day They're and so everyone funny. in the room was like, Oh, that was the biggest reaction. Everyone was like, how'd they get the logo in so fast? <laughs> it's a very, very, very boring recollection. The other thing I remember about that movie is that spoiler alert, when the insane thing happens, the whole audience gasped and I was like, did no one read this book in high no, school? I thought this was didn't. like a signed reading. <laughs> It's such a weird adaptation and also It's a very like, weird adaptation. Everyone felt I don't know, like when I was interviewing them, they felt the white people were very uncomfortable when I interviewed sure. them for that movie, which I think is which I thought was really great. I was like, no, talk about <laughs> I met Maggie Qualley, Qualey, I don't know what her name yeah. is. Qualey, like, Qualey, yeah. I'm not sure, yeah. And Nick then Robinson and, right, loves love Simon, Simon himself. Right. Yeah, Nick Robinson did most of the talking because I would ask her a question and she'd just be like, yeah, Nick? And I'd just be like, <laughs> I just didn't expect the Love, Simon guy to be the one doing most of the talking. But I, I think know. she didn't want to talk because I told her that she was great in Death Note and I think she thought I was making fun of her. And I wasn't. <laughs> okay, you want to talk about awkward celebrity love, encounters? She, she's, good, is, she's a good actress. I generally like her. She Anytime she pops up, I'm like, She's hey. always good. 
This yeah. is uh, on the subject of awkward celebrity encounters. This has also happened to me a lot where I meet someone famous and I go, hey, you were great in blank. And they think I'm trolling them because the I Neil have Patrick Harris story. That's the right. one I like. Yeah. I met Neil Patrick Harris. and I said, hey, you're great. An undercover brother. And he gave me the iciest glare of all time. And he went that one. <laughs> he is great. In that <laughs> he one. is. Yeah, he That's is. his best performance. <laughs> I was being I mean, genuine. He's in like he's what? in he's in a look down on undercover brother. I don't know. Yes. He shouldn't he shouldn't look down on it. Maybe I mean he's not in it that much, so maybe he's kind of like I mean okay. Yeah, but I've I've it's thrown quality, myself around the Broadway stage. I did magic. <laughs> he was great it's assassin. Like you said like a million ways to die in the West no. or something. Like I feel like that would be the troll answer. That no, would be very trolly. I love you yeah. in Beastly. That's no, my biggest yeah. NPH poll. Look, I saw Beastly. Okay, I wasn't saying you were good in Beastly, but I feel like very often people think. I'm trying to think of other examples. The Neil Patrick Harris one is the big one. Jordan, I feel like you are somewhat similar to David and I in that I will see you very often shout out a great performance in a movie that no one is even putting any thought into. Right. Right. Like, I feel like very often people, if a movie isn't good or especially if a movie isn't successful, they just throw the whole thing away. They just treat it like, well, that doesn't work. And I feel like we on this podcast love being like, this is a really good performance. This person yeah. is getting what this movie is. You should be able to extract good elements from a not wholly successful movie. And I feel like successful actors very often, if the movie isn't successful, treat their own work the same way. Like they're like, I must be bad in that because that didn't make money. Sure. No, it's not, yeah, it's not true. I mean, I don't, right. I guess some actors just don't rewatch their work as well. Maybe so he's just like, you know, he maybe has never even seen Undercover Brother. Who knows? I a just shame. love a that loss. one. It's so it was weird. The, that was the wording. That one? Yeah, that one? That I one? actually just bought a DVD of Undercover Brother, a used one, because I was like, I need to have this in my life. I it's was thinking so about I'm, oh Man, did it ever come out on Blu-ray? Now I wonder, like, do I, do I need to get high def Undercover Brother? Listen, today we're talking about The Secret Life of Bees. Now, yep. this is one of those examples of a movie where, like, the book gets optioned at the galley stage. Lauren yep. Schuler Donner, who's a big producer, gets sent the galleys in the way that I think a lot of big producers, the big publishers, will just send them oh, any yeah, new books they have coming out. And so she reads it at that stage before it becomes this massive bestseller and goes, wow, this is a movie, buys the rights uh, or options them. I think it it takes about six years. She carries it over to a couple different studios. I think it starts out at Big Fox and then it goes somewhere else and then it ends up at Fox Searchlight. But over that period of time, the book just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It was definitely at focus at some point because that's when David Gordon Green was going right. to make it. That was the big yeah. thing I was going to say. They went through right. a lot of people, but David Gordon Green was the big one for a while. And that's when they announced like Dakota Fanning is going to do it. She's a little young for the character as written. But what a weird phenomenon that we have this major prestige movie star who is nine years old. We have to rewrite this around her. And David Gordon Green, I guess they mostly were hiring because they're like, this guy made Undertow and George Washington. 
Yeah, because like he's, right. he's the guy who makes your sensitive Malikian, you know, southern, I don't know. Right. Yeah, he's a southern guy. A right. child-based dramas. I love David Gordon Green's early work and his yeah. later work is very confusing to me. Okay. <laughs> he, yes. he really weirds me out because I, too, I remember I loved his, like, All the Real Girls. Is I one love of those movies. The real girls. I adore that movie. I haven't seen it in years. I almost like three should movies. I revisit? Yeah. Yes. That that yeah. early trilogy I think is perfect. Like yeah. George Washington, saw, All the Real Girls on their toe. I love. They're great. I never saw Snow Angels. I know that it's, kind of like didn't okay. go over. Yeah. Snow it's, Angels is yeah. It's like yeah. meh. It's meh. And then he had his real like sort of you know uh, what's his Danny McBride Apatow. sort of stonery right. comedy run. Right. And yeah. then, then he was doing stuff like Our Brand is Crisis, where I was like, is he just like a for hire guy now? Like, right. I don't get it. And then Stronger was a movie that I like loved. And I was like, even though it was kind of ignored and it was like a, you know, feel good Oscar y real life movie, I was like, oh, this is so well directed. And like, I. I'm so happy like that he's making and then he now he's like trapped in Halloween land. So I don't know what's up with that. But that's, I yeah. don't like him doing Halloween. I don't either. I, I don't either. I mean, yeah. I've had no desire to revisit that movie. Like I, you know, I saw it with a cheering audience. It was fine. Like, but yeah, I yeah. don't I don't really know. Yeah, I stood in line for it. I was at the festival. I actually sat next to Elijah Wood to see the movie, hey, and that hey. was that's the experience that I think most of. Did he have a good time? Did he? Did Elijah enjoy it at least? Oh wait, was it no? Okay, wait, no. I saw us with Elijah Wood. Who did I see? Oh, that's well, I that's know. cooler. I think I ran into yeah. someone else for Halloween, but sure. no, I Elijah Wood seems to like just be like a chill guy. <laughs> he's like a chill guy who likes horror movies and stuff, right? Yeah, and he just, likes, he just likes to go to the movies. He likes I, a genre film. I bet if you told Elijah Wood I loved you in Flipper, he would say thank you. Elijah, yeah. He wouldn't yes. be like that one? No. He's okay. such a, well, Elijah Wood's just not like, I don't know. I feel like he doesn't take his career like as seriously no. as other actors do. Like he picks roles because he wants to have fun and you can yes. tell. Yeah. And he also produces so many horror movies. It's very clear that he likes movies. Like yeah. he is not picking the path of the obvious career for someone who starred in one of the biggest franchises of all time. He's picking the path of, I want to use that power to just carve out my little corner of the film universe doing the stuff I like to do. Yeah, yeah. and watching him watch us was so cool. I've just never seen, because like I see movies with press a lot, and it's like they're not paying attention. Meanwhile, Elijah Wood is just like leaned in, just like paying direct <laughs> attention, and I just, I love that. Love when people actually pay attention to the movie. <laughs> you know what movie is uh, already more relevant than when it came out 18 months ago? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Us. Us. I like once a month think about like, man, Us is aging really well, huh? Us is doing great. Us is killing <laughs> Good movie. it. movie. Um, I, yeah. I do think it's interesting because like it, after those first three, the Southern Gothic sort of like uh, Malikian, uh, uh inner lives of uh, children, uh, uh, David Gordon Green movies, I was like, man, this guy, he's the guy. This is going to be the dude who has the career. Like, he's got a really clear style, but these three movies are kind of different genres. And then he becomes somewhat anonymous. And there's even the weird thing of, like, within his comedy run, Pineapple Express, for all of its faults, feels like it's made by a very specific director. The sitter sure. does not. 
in the same sure. way that like even though Stronger is very different from his early films, it feels like it's made by a very specific director and our brand as Crisis does not. And I remember at the time, like my exposure to Secret Life of Bees for the first time as a book was hearing that David Gordon Green was going to make it and being such a big fan of his and being like, ooh, I'm excited for a new David Gordon Green movie. And you think back to like, at that point in time, reading about this book, you had a very clear image in your head of what that movie would be. And at this point, if you hear David Gordon Green's going to make this, you have no idea what that could be. I never saw this movie. I, for a long time, thought it was a Spelling Bee movie because there was that spate of bee Spelling season. Bee movies. And Akilah and season. the Bee. and the Bee. And I was like, this must be another Spelling Bee movie. And then I saw the poster and it was a honeycomb. And I'm like, well, okay, I assume it's actual bees then. I've seen this movie before. Um, so this was my second time watching it. Uh, I don't, this is like my, this is the kind of movie that I kind of hate the most. So I almost feel like I don't really come to it with the kind of like wide eyes. Like I'll watch a movie. I'll watch a movie that's just like about like, uh, I watched Frankenhooker and I'll just be like, I'm watching sure. Frankenhooker. <laughs> my mind, my mind is open. I want to know what's going to happen. Whereas like Secret Life of Bees, my mind is like this and then it just keeps on closing as I get angrier. <laughs> I, I am with you entirely. And I am such a big Gina fan. I had put off watching this movie for so long for that very reason. I'm like, this is not my type of movie. This is in like the collection of subgenres that I'm least and inclined like, to like. Right. I mean, and I love Southern movies. Like the thing about Southern movies, movies about racism, like I dig those. And I actually think that like if David Gordon Green had made it and if the character It might have been was, a little darker. Yeah. yeah. And it, I just, I probably would have preferred that version of the movie just because um, the kind of stuff that they're working with, the kind of themes i just feel like they could have been opened up a little bit more and i also think about the way that david gordon green like my one of my favorite david gordon green movies is joe and so i think about like um the paul bettany character what would that look like in a david gordon green movie and i feel like it'd be closer to joe yes yeah um, yeah the the element that Gina feels least connected to here is is the south of it all, which was obviously David Gordon Green's strong suit at this point. Right. Right. She's, of course, a Californian, but like it's also she just has in all her movies, like she has so much sympathy for her characters. And that is a quality like in her filmmaking, like. I hate to call. I didn't hate this movie at all. Like it's, it was. No, it, I don't it dislike its, you know, it, but, but it is, it's, I, it's fighting against my expectations of this type of movie. But I hate to use this word because it's a pretty broad and uninteresting word, but like this movie is a little boring yeah. and that's not like it shouldn't be like, it's not it, the, the books. I'm sure, you know, w whatever, like a, a gentle read in its own way, but like, this is not about boring things and it doesn't have boring events. Like, and yet there is just, there's something a little like the tone never just, you know, spikes in either direction. And those are the Southern movies that I hate the most. Like I prefer, like as a person from the South, like, 
it, there's a lot of complicated stuff. I hate it when it's depicted like a little bit too cartoony, but I also hate when it's a little too soft as well. And so it's just like when we're like dealing with all of these different things like racism and stuff, I hate it. Like if it can be played in history class, it probably means that the depiction of racism is not that great. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, I agree. Uh, that That's what makes this fall into the category of like movies I'm not that into. The movies that are sort of like book closed on racism wasn't that bad. Like, well, and it's like the lesson being learned is, yeah, right. It's not an interesting lesson, I guess. I, although I also was sort of struggling to, I guess what she's learning is that her mom was a complicated person as well, right? Is that the personal lesson? It's heavy she's on learning? the mother themes, I guess. Yeah. 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 I, I just, I can is, see yeah. like Gina, who wrote the movie, right? Like, so, yes. like, I, and she's the only credited writer. So I'm assuming she's being brought on early en- enough that she is. I, I was the whole thing, digging right? into a lot of the special features on the Blu-ray. It sounds to me like she was maybe brought on as a writer first uh-huh. okay. when they that were struggling sure. to crack this story. David Gordon Green never figured it out. The book doesn't seem to have much of sort of like a driving plot. And so they kept on taking different stabs at it. No one could figure it out. They bring her on as a writer. She's the first one who cracks it. They let her direct it. But I think they viewed it as like, finally, someone has a handle on this. And the two elements for me that it feels like she's connecting to here are, one, the, the thing that is like, you know, she's so focused on these small moments of human interaction and connection between people. I, I think the backdrop of this movie and the larger sort of stakes at play are less intriguing to her than this idea of this haven in which these five women are living together. Like, that seems to be the thing she's interested in, and that's when this movie works the best, is when it's just the dynamics at play, right. the smaller sort of yeah, movements. Yeah, it, it's like a portrayal of womanhood and community, right, that's not a lot of the tropes you would see in a movie about Southern racism. There's the other angle that it feels like she's very connected to, which is, I I think I read this and, and Bilga has been writing so much good stuff about her with old guard Mm. coming out because he's a big Gina Stan. And he wrote like a long form piece and did an interview with her and a review and everything. Um, the quiet storm, I think his main piece is called, but she was, uh, the byproduct because she, she was adopted. She grew up with white parents in Southern California. But her biological mother was white. And she was given up for adoption because I want to say it was in the South. And she knew, her mother knew that she would be reviled in her community for giving birth to a black child. Correct. Yes. Right. She said that it was not a, a good experience, her you know, reconnecting right. with her. Birth so her mother gave her up for adoption as sort of like a defense mechanism against violence in her own life. And it took her a very long time to find her mother. And when she found her, she had a hard time connecting to her and she doesn't really have a relationship with her. So that feels like the big in for her is this idea of like this. Sure. You have this character of, trying to figure out her own mother. Who's this absent. Uh, the mother must figure, be the right, turnkey yeah. to me understanding that myself. Story for me, like makes me think more about beyond the lights. Too. I was just like, totally. well, that, yeah. that's a very good movie about mothers and daughters. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's that's the movie that she writes that feels like it's far more representative of her own relationship. Right. But I think that's the thing that she connected to is the idea of being a small child, being so driven by this idea of I need to know what my mother's like. But 
that those elements of it feel so kind of plotty. Like they feel so obvious, like sort of movie, I need to fill this gap kind of stuff in a way that is, I don't know, it just feels like going through the motions a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to know more about the mom, like in general. I needed to know more about her to really understand. Like, I feel like there's just so much, maybe because the movie is very, like, for kids, I feel like the whole, like, sex of it all is kind of missing. Sure. And I think part of it is that, like, I mean, how do you talk about, because the way that they describe her mother's relationship with Paul Bettany is that he was in the war, she was impressed by that, they were in love for like six months, and then she didn't love him anymore, but she was pregnant, and so they got married, and then, like, I guess presumably he became abusive, but I feel like there's so much of that that, like... I wanted to know more about it. I wanted to know why he was so bitter in the first place, aside from just like he was in a war. So that just makes him better. Like there was just, I feel like because this is so seen in the child's, like I feel like the, the relationships, the adult relationships don't really get like any like nuance or room to breathe. And since that's like hinging so much of what's going on, because Dakota Fanning's not really like doing a whole lot. I don't know. It's very hard. Like I kept on thinking about um, My Girl 2, which I um, which I'm a very big My Girl 2 defender. I think that My Girl 2 is great, which like it's just it's just about Veda trying to figure out about her mom. And it's like a more I don't know. It's a more intimate story because she's like talking to like people that her mom used to date and like looking at footage of like what her mom was like. And it's just like, it's more of like a, what kind of woman is she and what kind of woman am I going to be kind of thing. And I kind of wanted more of that here. And that story is like one of the types of stories that hits me hardest emotionally. Like anytime a movie goes for like, I'm trying to learn about someone I never really got to know myself and learning through the other people they were close to, that's like a total like Griffin emotional breaking point for me. And this movie is only dealing with it in this kind of like central mystery way. Like it's so focused on, did she come back for me or did she come back for her stuff? Well, it has that, but also it's not focusing on it for most of the movie. It's a weird sort of prologue epilogue time is when she's really thinking about that. And then when she arrives at the, the honey, you know, house, yeah, it, it kind of she kind of just is like, well, I'm going to get into all this now. And like, it kind of just gets set aside well, yes. until I, Bettany yeah. comes back. I, I mean that the only aspect in which it's interested in that is solving that one mystery. But the yeah. movie becomes yes. so much less interested in in the way where you're like, Gina just wants to make a movie about these different characters in a house together. Like, I feel yeah. like she talked about uh, how like she was trying to avoid the sense that you need to represent all the isms on one of the like behind the scenes documentary. Like she's like this, the book is so focused on the isms of the time that I felt like I could drop a lot of those and really just focus on the character interactions and not worry about proving too many larger points. But that also means that when the movie starts to get to those scenes, it feels a little less engaged because it's also like, that's kind of, it's interesting. I mean, Jordan, you're talking about this movie's weird relationship to sex. I feel like she makes very, like, mature 
representations of sexuality in film. Like, I feel like Old Guard, Love and Basketball, and Beyond the Lights are films that are really interested in, like, a level of emotional intimacy and what connects people to each other, you know, and how those dynamics change at different levels of comfort in a relationship. And movies that all feel very sexy without being graphic because they're so keyed into uh, the psychological aspects of sexuality in a way, uh, or at least in sort of attraction. And... This movie feels very kind of hands off with all of that. And there's like one of the featurettes on the DVD, they're interviewing the whole cast about like the differences between the the characters as written and uh, how they were adapted and how they chose to play them. And there are a lot of interesting choices here where like the Jennifer Hudson character, which I think Jennifer Hudson might be the best performance in this movie. Yeah. I think so, too. And she also kind of gets sidelined for the whole middle section. She's also really just there in the front. Yeah. She gets like one line at the end. It's like, well, I'm going to vote now. And you're like, remember that plot line? I'm like, oh, yeah, that was set this all off. Right. They bring her back into the fold in like the last 20 minutes. But the first like chunk of it is so much about her. And I think she's really fucking good. And the thing that's interesting is uh, in the book, she was supposed to be a much older woman. And Gina was the one who said, it feels like that's a very stereotypical dynamic. I would rather that she be closer in age to Dakota Fanning. I think that's more interesting if they're closer to being contemporaries. And it's, it's someone who is somewhat at the beginning of her life and has the potential to have uh, the civil rights movement actually affect her at an early stage for the rest mm. of her life rather than being a woman who's in her 60s and sort of was never given these opportunities, that she's sort of at the beginning of this opportunity. Um, and I think that, like, that works. And that opening chunk, even though it's going through a lot of these, like, plotty sort of motions, the stuff that works is the dynamic between the two of them. And the Queen Latifah character is much older in the book. Like, she made a lot of those... Uh, shifts, which I think work. But then they interview Hillary Burton, who at this point was like total request live correspondent who then becomes a One Tree Hill star. So she's very much in this sort of like teen pop world. And this is like one of her first big serious roles. And she said, my real goal with this was to make sure that my character was not just the lady in the pictures because in like movies like this and stories like this, there's the character who people just look at an old photograph of, and they never feel like a fully formed human being. And I wanted her to feel like real and three dimensional. And it's a bummer because it just feels like the movie is not giving her any room to be anything other than the woman in the picture. Yeah. Cause I mean, her vibe is actually really interesting. And I think yeah. that that's, yeah. And I was just, she doesn't like, I don't know. There is a certain way that like Southern white women are kind of like, I don't know. There's certain like posture that Hollywood gives them where they're just like all these like very like dignified kind of like Southern belle kind of posture. And she just seemed chill. And, you know, she seemed like open. She had like a very like open expressions in her face. Like I could see like she seemed like a human person. <laughs> she does. I, I don't yeah. know. Sometimes I think that like and maybe it's just because she doesn't get to say a lot. And so it doesn't really get bogged down by her trying to do an accent or anything like that <laughs> but yeah i wanted her in more scenes because i i thought that she was really interesting 
this movie may might be better if it was more a parallel story about Lily and Rosaline hmm. both making mm-hmm. this journey, both arriving at this community. And Mamma Mia too, if you will. Yes. Right. Yeah. And both both <laughs> being changed by it, you know, both right. like, you know, emerging as different people. Um and I mean I like Dakota Fanning. And it was interesting, as we were saying, watching this movie. I was just recollecting like, oh, God, remember when she was this just like super poised child actor? I feel like we talked about it on our War of the Worlds episode, right, Griffin? We must have. Yes, but I do want to do a little bit of a career sidebar here. Go on. I'm Um, just pulling up the the I don't think she's very good in this movie. Um, And I I, I don't mean that in a mean way, but like when we're getting to the big stuff at the end and when she's having the big breakthroughs and she's crying and she's having these long conversations with Queen Latifah's character, I was kind of like, mm, yeah. I, like I like she was she she was the center of the movie, and I was really always struggling to lock into her. Um, and maybe it would be yeah, maybe it benefits if you if you give Jennifer Hudson's character more to do. I I think she's a very skilled actress, but there are scenes yeah. that I think the one I'm thinking of is the one where she gives the like I'm an unlovable monster speech to Latifa, and then she like falls to her knees. And it just yeah. feels like such a it stock, felt, big, yeah, it felt dramatic. Acty. Right. It feels very yeah. acty. I mean, she, that was, you know, part of her thing. Like, this is, what's she interesting. She shot her fucking mom. Like, this yes. is the like, darkest thing in her that she will ever have to, like, you know, say to anyone. And there, basically. trauma is so weird. And there are so many interesting ways of expressing trauma as an actor right, sure. and as a filmmaker. And then you get to that scene and it's like, it is the most sort of off the shelf. This is a person having an emotional breakdown in a movie. You know, it's it's not representative of, I think, how anyone actually processes trauma. It's only how people play trauma in an acting class. I think the character of May, if anything, like represented trauma, maybe a lot more accurately. I watched some interview where Gina talked about how casting for that role was she wanted to be like really particular about it because she said in her words it w- could tank the movie if it you know yes was like it's too it's cartoonish. it's the the role that if you do too much with that you're just like okay you know like it, it would throw everything off and she's very good i mean she sophia ganado is a great actress uh, i want to go performance by performance actor by actor because i think that's the most interesting thing to talk about with this movie. yeah and yeah, i sure. also wanted right. to say real quick because uh, i was also in my head because i was when this movie came out i was like just at the right age let's see when it was it was 2000 it was 2008 so i was i was in high school so i was just like a little too old for it but Mm -hmm. like still like i was still aware enough of like children's films and stuff to have like an opinion and i remember thinking this should have been anna sophia robb um, interesting. <laughs> she was always the sort of like, you know, the, the tastemakers Dakota Fanning. Yeah. Because Anna Sophia Robb also did a bunch of like, did did more like kind of like Southern roles. When Dixie. D- yeah. And sure. Anna Sophia Robb, I feel like, has a better handle on that entire environment, than, which is weird because Dakota Fanning is from Georgia, but she just doesn't seem like a person from Georgia. Neither okay. does Al, honestly. <laughs> it's really weird. Okay. I, I want to, I, let's dig into this Dakota Fanning sidebar, okay? okay? Because I always just assumed in my mind, especially because Dakota and Elle are both good actresses, 
and uh, were, were so skilled at such a young age, I was like, A, they feel very coastal, and B, they feel very like Haley Joel Osment. They are the children of actors or acting coaches. Like, when you hear about Haley Joel Osment, you're like, oh, his parents were actors, but they never really made it, and then they became, like, acting teachers, and then he was born, and you're like, oh, so he was, like, raised in a household where they, like, taught him how to act and right. the work ethic of and being an actor. And he was like a actor. consummate professional at like age eight. Right. All of that stuff. I'm like, that really comes out of, oh, my parents were failed actors, but they instilled in me the sort of like the workflow of being an actor and the like day to day of the job. Um, so I always just in my mind was like, one of the Fanning parents must be an actor, right? You look at their Wikipedia and not only, as you said, do they come from Georgia, which is surprising, but also their entire family is sports. Yeah, okay. A lot of athletes. Yeah. Her mother played tennis professionally. Her father, minor league baseball player, maternal grandfather, former American football player, her aunt, former ESPN reporter. Jill Arrington. Right. They yeah, just come it- from this pure sports family. There's like no sort of like just Southern sports. And then these two like very like formal, like, hello, I'm a serious child actor. Kids come out at age three. You know, I will say, you know, she went to school in California. My guess is they eventually moved to California because she became a actress at such a young age right. like that she but, was yeah. doing all this stuff. Yeah. But it feels like very much the cart followed the horse. It was like she comes yeah, out no, and 100%. is like, hello, I'm a tiny thespian. And they're like, I guess we have to move to Hollywood. <laughs> when she was yeah. in I Am Sam, I just, she didn't get the Oscar nomination. No. Um, she got the uh, SAG. But she, she got a SAG nomination. And I do remember it was a real conversation. Where it was like, are we about to nominate a six-year-old? Like, is this going to yeah. happen? Like, because the Oscars nominate kids, obviously, but six is like very young. I mean, how old was Tatum O'Neill? Tatum, Tatum I O'Neil, think, was, I think 10? was 11. 10 or 11. Quavanzane yeah. uh. Qu- is still the youngest. And that feels like they finally broke that barrier. Quavanzane, there was also the thing, though, where that movie was shot. Right. Two years before played at Sundance, which was then a year before the Oscars. So by the time she shows up at the ceremonies, she's three years older than she was in the movie. Uh, yeah, she was yeah. nine when she was nominated or whatever. Yeah, she was six right, she when was they filmed like six or seven. Yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't just that she had like cute little chubby cheeks no. and she was a sweetie. No. Like she was a, a poised actor, like she at a young Uptown age. Uptown Girls is like Uptown my Girls. Yes. Yeah. Man on fire. She's like great in like, you know, mm-hmm. like, like when she was a little kid, she was, she was very impressive. I never saw the cat in the hat. Griffin, I'm assuming you have seen that. She's, uh, she's yes. good in the cat in the she hat. Is. The cat in the hat itself is a nightmare movie. Um, she, uh, right. She's doing the uptown girls thing. I mean, this is what, what is so fascinating to me about Dakota Fanning. Here's a very, very young child who became a major movie star, right? And the other examples of this are like Macaulay Culkin and sure. uh, uh, Shirley Temple, you know? And to a lesser degree, because they were a little older, like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. And the dynamic there is like, they just represent a kid so well. And they're not exclusively beloved by kids, but they definitely, a lot of their movie stardom is that kids see themselves on screen. And then Dakota is this weird anomaly where it's like, she became a major movie star, but it was almost based on, she seems like a tiny adult. 
Nothing about her yeah. seems childlike. And she was either giving like wise beyond her years performances, which is like really I am Sam, right? In right. really Those intense are, movies, it's like yeah. I am Sam, War of the Worlds, Hide and Seek. Like whether Man they were prestige, Man on Fire, whether they were prestige or like mainstream. The premise was kind of this actress is having to play very harrowing things in very adult films, and she seems to be doing it with a lot of professionalism and poise. And then the closest she comes to movie star performances, the closest she comes to having like a movie star persona is the Uptown Girls Cat in the Hat. I'm a little child who acts like a 70 or 8 year old woman. I'm high status. Dreamer Dreamer is like the one outlier where it's like, here's a family movie where Dakota is playing just a kid and it's the one that exists the least sure never saw it. I, have never, I have never seen dreamer it's, uh, she like was her, uh, charlotte's web right is she is she the kid oh, in she that? is she yeah. is and she's actually good in charlotte's web but it is funny that like so little of her career was tied to her being a, a, a sort of um avatar for children you know, it's like she's got her movies yeah. in which she plays a real kid, but those are adult films. And then she has her movies where the entire joke is she doesn't behave like a child. And those are the movies that kids could actually see. Yeah. And then she, when she hit like young adult age, like because like this is 2008 and 2007, yeah. she did a movie called Hound Dog, which oh, I have boy. seen. Yeah. Have you seen it? <laughs> no, I have not oh. seen Hound Dog. I only remember Hound Dog as the movie everyone made such a fuss over when it was like announced or what, you yeah. know, like it was like, well, well, wait a second. She's going to be in this, you know, grown up movie where she's abused and like, well, I don't know if that should be allowed. Like, I just remember there being a lot of discourse about Hound Dog at the time. It was How like, is this Hound is Dog? Dakota Fanning's uh, pretty baby. It was like the movie where everyone was like, is this humane? Why is she doing this? Hound Dog? Hound Dog is a very depressing movie, but like sure. it's depressing in a way where it's like it's the kind of role that you would ex- it's I don't know how to say this in a delicate way. Um you usually don't see white kids deal with that in movies. It's hmm. usually like everyone but white kids. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a very like I don't know. The kind of melancholy of Hound Dog, it reminds me a lot of like Stuff like precious stuff, stuff on the long sure. the lines of that. And it's just it's weird to see her there because she's just so like well moisturized and like pristine. And I just don't <laughs> believe that she's like sure. really going through it. Yeah, that's what how, she looks like how a little dog. doll. <laughs> she's just yeah, she's just little, she's like porcelain. So, yeah, Hound Dog is like the, she did like two southern movies and it's this movie and Hound Dog and Hound Dog was like the dark one. And this was like the nice one. And now she right. doesn't do something other movies anymore and i'm actually really happy about it because it's weird she seems weird like she doesn't seem like she belongs there (laughs) right it's like 2001 i am sam that's pretty much her debut she played kids no she and she'd been in er and and al mcbeal and stuff like she yeah she done kid kid roles right then the next year is like trapped sweet home alabama hansel and gretel i think in this hansel and gretel movie she's like not uh uh Gretel. She she plays something else. Sweet Home Alabama. She's in very briefly. She is being read a story. Right. She's the Gretel. Fred Savage role in that. Yes, Sweet Home Alabama. Is. She's playing young Reese Witherspoon. Trapped. She's like that's that weird abduction movie with Charlize yeah, Theron. Yeah, she's a Kevin kid Bacon. in peril. Right. Yeah. 
then 2003 is like Uptown Girl's Cat in the Hat. That's like comedies in which the premise is she acts like a grown lady, right? And then you go Man on Fire, Hide and Seek, Nine Lives, War of the Worlds. Like this is Dakota Fanning is like acting alongside An major actor. movie stars playing like extreme circumstances. And, and Steven Spielberg is doing interviews and going like, she's as good as any actor I've ever worked with. She's amazingly skilled at assessing a situation and figuring out what a scene needs. And it becomes like the, the Dakota Fanning show on SNL. Like the joke is Dakota Fanning is this weird adult in a child's body who like is like very sort of like erudite and pretentious. And then it's like Charlotte's Web is her last kind of children's film. Then it's Hound Dog. Secret Life of Bees, Coraline, which she had obviously recorded much earlier. She's great. Which honks. Great in Coraline. Yeah, Coraline honks. Yeah. She honks She's in Coraline. She's in Push, which of course right. is the reason that Precious is called Precious because it's a movie I Push. I remember that. That important <laughs> yes. franchise. But then it's right. Now it's this pivot point. It's like Push, Twilight Saga, Runaways. Twilight Saga. She's good in the Runaways. Twilight Saga. Yeah, she's good in all these things. She's also uh, going to college at this point. She's going to college. She went to NYU. I believe she actually graduated. Yes. She seems to have made that uh, like a priority more than some young actors would. From 2009 to 2013, all she really does is the Twilight movies and some things that never really saw a wide release. And then it's like Night Moves, Effie Gray. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Starting with, I would say, Tell me the things. Tell me the thing. And, and she, before you get now, into this, is this with Alec Baldwin or without Alec Baldwin? Here's the thing with Alec Baldwin. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, a lot of the movies that are in her filmography later, I've never even heard of. But like Night Moves, American Pastoral, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She has become America's favorite, like, spooky like blonde lady like she plays like radicals and creeps and frightening people like why this is now her thing like it's very night moves she's an eco-terrorist and she doesn't share any scenes with griffin newman but you know you you were both in it a shame an absolute shame Uh, uh, American Pastoral, she is, you know, she's Sonny Lavav, right? She's the, the mm-hmm. uh, Mary, not Sonny. So, you know, the girl who basically joins the weather underground and blows something up. And then, and she then once plays upon a time, Squeaky she's from. Squeaky From. And she's yeah. kind of good. She's kind of scary. I like, think she's yeah. good. She's That's got a these good like scene. big scary kind of like empty eyes. Like yeah. there's a yeah. shot where she's watching Alicia Keys make out. And I, w- I just remember thinking like if the music were any different, this would be like from a horror movie because she's just like sort of... Like yeah. in the bushes nearby. <laughs> it's just funny that that is now her thing. That's yes. it's yeah. just a funny little groove that she found for herself. And I also like watching a movie like like this, like Secret Life of Bees. I look at this performance and my takeaway is, wow, Dakota Fanning sure was very professional at that age. Like I keep on viewing sure, the scene nice. as like a skill piece where I'm like, that's impressive that like someone this young did this. I don't know how engaging I find this performance, but it's clear that she's a very skilled actress on a technical level. And then those three yeah. later movies you're talking about all become like real vibe performances, like the exact kind of thing she wasn't particularly good at as a child where it's like she's just being very natural and, and sending out like a real energy. 
she seems to be like more chill than she used to be, which I guess yeah. is usually the case. Like I, I always liked Dakota Fanning characters because they reminded me of like me as a kid. I was like that. You were like a <laughs> serious little child. I was a very serious <laughs> kid. I was, you were an uptown uh, girl. You had yeah. <laughs> you had no patience for the cat in the hat chicanery. No. <laughs> No, yeah, I was so I was that kind of kid. So I really got her. And then, like, you know, she got older and she chilled out. I got older and I started smoking weed and mm. I chilled out. <laughs> Maybe know? Dakota did, it too. <laughs> I, I forgot to mention she's in that thing, The Alienist, which right. I don't watch. But I know I know some people enjoy The Alienist. Now in season I've, two. I've heard, I've heard that people like that show. What I, if there I, was an alienist? Mm. What's that? Wait, is that on Hulu? No, it's on TNT. Uh, it's a TNT show about like early criminal profiling, like vintage 19th century criminal profiling. But the alienist is also one of those things that like was a uh, Kerry Fukunawa project that he then abandoned and still happened anyway. Like it's in that exact time zone where it's like, OK, you know what? I'm not doing it anymore, but now I'm going to do this TV show. Actually, I'm not going to do this TV show anymore. I'm going to do this instead. Like he kept on. Oh, was he supposed to do it? Yes. Yeah, he, he wrote. He is in the screenplay credit on. He it. still gets the screenplay credit, and apparently, a lot of the designs are still things that Kerry Fukunawa approved. Like by uh. all accounts, the Pennywise design in the movie is what he developed. Ah, uh, I really like. <laughs> I really like the first it. I the first do, it is good. Jordan, yeah. Here's what's interesting. <laughs> he apparently took it right up to the finish line. They became afraid that what he was doing was too avant-garde and not commercial enough. So he walked. They hire uh, Muschietti. Andy Muschietti, yeah. He barely touches Fukunawa's script for the first movie, tries to put in more conventional scares. The movie's a huge hit. Then he apparently dramatically rewrites the second script, like throws it out. I think a lot of what's good in the first movie is what Kerry Fukunawa developed. The second movie sucks so hard. And it's that's so bad. the movie that has none of his fingerprints on it anymore. Yeah, I know. He's not credited as a screenwriter. The second Fukunawa. movie is one of the most... I I actually walked out of the theater and not because like I was offended by the movie, although... like that Was I it because like you'd been sitting in that theater for eight hours and the movie wasn't I done? Was, <laughs> I got half way through the movie realized how much was left realized how irritated i was that i was there and i'm just like you know what i'm in times square this is before they got rid of the times square sephora uh. and like i'm gonna go to sephora <laughs> instead of finishing this movie make well, a better I'm use sorry. of the half hour of your time <laughs> You missed 18 more flashbacks, so I'm sorry that you missed that. And then just a couple days ago, I try, I watched it at home, and, like, it's just one of the most upsetting. Like, I thought on a smaller screen, I'd be less angry about it, because I watch, I watch all kinds of dumb shit. Like, yeah. Kyle, Kyle gets so annoyed with me with the shit that I'll watch. Like, he'll come in, and he's like, what are you watching? I'll be like, Dead Heat, and he'll just, like, turn around and walk out. <laughs> like... But I can't, I could not sit through it part two. Like that's, I don't know why. I just didn't have the patience. Can for I give you my take any of that on why okay, you, yeah. you couldn't put up with it? Because yeah. it's the exact opposite of what you're talking about. It's a movie that should be owning 
sort of the trashiness of where it can go. And instead, it has this lofty self-importance of it's the final chapter in the It saga. And they're acting like it's It Endgame. Like they're acting acting like 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 there's been 40 It movies. The culmination of of 10 years and 20 (laughs) movies. And you're like, dude, it's one two hour movie that you're banking off of. Just wrap up the fucking story. You don't need to make this like a legacy. It's acting like it's a legacy sequel. Like, can you believe we got all the kids back together again? Remember that trailer hit? You know, the, the cool one? trailer, the Chastain visiting the old lady. The teaser is scene. so oh, good for that she, like, like, oh by the my hall. God. Yeah, this is great. Oh, this is so cool. And then, yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Shitty movie. Um, all right, moving on from Dakota Fanning. Is there another filmography you want to discuss, Griffin, uh, next? I mean, let's say like, okay, Alicia Keys, this is really her first movie. And I think people expected that she was going to have a film career and she kind of just didn't. And I think she's good in this. And she was also in Smoking Aces, which she's cool in. Uh, and she's in the that Nanny Diaries. This. Oh, you're right. This is kind of the last one. Yeah. It's it's Smoking Aces and Nanny Diaries in 2007. Nanny Diaries, she plays like the best friend role. Smoking Aces, she plays a cool assassin. For a long time, uh, when the Why the Last Man movie was supposed to be made, with DJ Caruso and Shia LaBeouf. Uh, she was supposed to play, I'm forgetting oh, her yeah. name. The agent, agent 100? Yeah. No, it's not 100. It's like... Sh- 355. She yeah. was announced agent as 355. playing 355. And then she does this movie, which felt like her big sort of like, oh, now she's making a prestige movie. And then mm-hmm. she doesn't really act that much ever again. The only performance she's given since is playing Alicia Keys in Jam and the Holograms. And she was uh, on Empire and stuff. Uh, she did pop up on Empire. I mean, she's done some TV maybe, but no, no. She she pivoted to like, uh, like you know, reality TV. Like she did uh, the X Factor. She did. Um, I feel like she did another. Right? Doesn't she does another the voice? of the the Voice? Yeah, you know, like she's yeah. she's she's all in on that now. I feel like that eats up so much of your time. I'll say she's those, also like hosted the Grammys. Shows. I think. Yeah. 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 She's produced a lot, both like on film yeah. and TV and on Broadway. Like she produces a lot of other people's works. Um, but I think she's good in this. Like I I remember being excited at the time that it felt like she was going to become a movie star, that she was going to have a sort of Janelle Monet like split career and keep doing both. Um Cause she's a good actress and she's very innately engaging. She's yeah, no, she's she's really good. It's weird. I hadn't, I never think about Alicia Keys anymore. That's such an interesting thing. Like I watched her in this movie and I was like, oh yeah, fuck, she was in movies for like a second. Yeah, and like now I mostly just know her as that that weirdo on Instagram. Like she's sure. just, she's like, she's I don't wear like makeup. Weird... I'm just amazingly she's, beautiful all the time. She's very into not wearing it. makeup. I know this, right? Like that's her thing now. The most notable thing that she has done, in my opinion, since this movie, is uh, break up Swiss Beats as marriage. Like mm. That's, mm. that was a that was a big one. She was in the headlines a lot for that. Like <laughs> she's. She's very cool in this movie, which makes sense because that's yeah. her vibe. She's good at that. She's like, I would not say it's a one note performance, but it's sort of like, a, you know, she's got she's got a lot of poise and presence and she's like a cool and magnetic figure. 
Yeah, yeah right? I, I liked her. Um, yeah. I thought I thought that the the Nate Parker, the Nate Parker of it all, man, every single time oh. I see him, I was like, fuck, you're still in movies. I man. know. Well, this is this is, uh, I guess, the beginning. Like, this is where she his relationship uh, with Gina. Right, yeah. right. Where she finds yeah. him. And, and this is before Red Tails. Like, I don't. What had he been in before this? The Great Debaters. I guess that's that's right. That favorite. was sort yeah. of his discovery movie. I'm trying to, I'm tr- I yeah. don't even remember the first place that I saw Nate Parker because for a while I did I did like him. I mean, I didn't have any reason not to like him before. I know. Yeah. I, um, it, it's the one thing I dread about rewatching Beyond the Lights. Yeah. Um, it's, oh, yeah. It's he of, did. He did. He did Pride, which is that yeah, swimming movie the that swimming I've never seen. Movie. Right. The Great Debaters. Yeah, I've, I've never seen The Great Debaters either. I think he's he's the main kid yes. in The Great Debaters. He, he's the main debater in the film. You have, like, Denzel as the captain, the teacher. You have Forrest Whitaker as the disapproving parent. And then Nate Parker is sort of giving the, like, anointment role. Like, it very much feels like that movie is Denzel saying, like, I'm saying that this is a guy. And I'm giving him a spotlight and I, Denzel, am trying to put the focus on this dude. And then people start putting him in movies. Yeah. 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 Um, But yeah, the stuff with him and her, I was so like... I just felt like there was a piece missing. Like, I get it. She doesn't want to marry him or whatever. But like, why doesn't she want to marry him? It's never really like... Was it like supposed to be... They're cut out of the movie or something. I Like, there's definitely something not there. Because, like, I guess it's like she wanted her independence or something. Like, I'm not really sure. I also, like, in my head, Ken, and I was like, oh, maybe she's gay. And then she says, and then she accepts it anyway. I don't know. She had a lot of gay vibes from her. I kind of wanted her to be gay. Absolutely. (laughs) And in in Smoking Aces, she's gay. She plays, like, a very cool gay assassin who I believe is maybe in a relationship with Taraji P. Henson. They're, They're, like, gay couple assassins. Um, but, uh, it's a good performance. Um, but all the special features I watched, they talked about how much difficulty they had adapting this character and they keep on talking about likability in this sort of like standard Hollywood kind of way. But I think it's because they were like, we're worried that the character feels like kind of a buzzkill. She's the only one who doesn't want Dakota Fanning moving in. And she's the one who's kind of uptight. And she keeps on rejecting this guy's marriage proposals. And so it seems like their solution to making her likable is sort of making her comedically heightened and treating all the uh, proposals like they're Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown. But it also makes it feel like it's just like a sketch comedy routine until she finally inexplicably goes like, nah, I'm going to marry you. No, I don't even understand it because he calls her a bitch. I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, that over, seems kind of weird. But then it's the other thing again, you're like, wait, whoa, 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 wait, what, what is going on with these two? And then he's out of the movie for a while. And then yeah. like by the time he comes back, I had almost forgotten the plot. Like, I don't know. Like, like I she, feel like if a guy, like it would have made sense if she was just gay because it's like, oh, he calls her a selfish bitch, and it's like, okay, well, obviously he's not coming back, and she, and obviously she can't say, hey, I'm gay. Like that's just me. That's what I would have done. It would have fixed hey. everything, in my opinion. That's how I would have read the movie. Yeah. Yes, and it would have made it a little more interesting. And it would explain why she's so. I mean, like. <laughs> 
she's, she's, she's right. She's sort of closed yeah. up. She's right. She doesn't yeah. want to talk about her feelings in the same, but also like, she's sort of like this opposite, you know, June and May are like sort of uh, right. Like, you know, May is so emotive and she's mm-hmm. so, you know, like all her emotions are right on the surface. So June's kind of like very sublimated for a movie about a bunch of people hanging out in a house and learning about each other. You don't learn a lot about a lot of the characters no. in the no. movie. She has like an NAACP shirt and I think she sure. says something about a meeting, but then it's just like never addressed again. I, th- I think she wears that shirt at four different points in the movie, like four yeah. different timeline points in the movie. They keep on wanting to sort of just like code in without having to devote screen time to it. The idea that she's like, a leader and an organizer and all this sort of stuff. But you only get it through seeing her t-shirt while she walks out and goes like, excuse me, I'm trying to practice my music. Um, Boy, let's talk about Latifah. Let's go and talk about Queen Latifah. Okay. She is still, you know, this just is a her few movie years from her run. Oscar nomination. Yes. And right. This is sort of like in the run with like taxi beauty shop last holiday, right? Like those movies where she is above the title and she's the, She's the lead. She's the top build performer. Right. Yeah. She's she's uh, above um, Dakota Fanning or anyone she's else. She's first build. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Chicago yeah. comes out in 2002. She gets an Oscar nomination. Everyone's like, fuck, Queen Latifah, who at this point has already proven herself as an actress. She's great and set it off. She did multiple seasons of uh, Living Single, right? Yeah. 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 Come on. She's a legend. Living Single. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She's she's actually amazing and set it off, obviously. Like that. Yeah. She's. Yeah, one of my movie. favorite movie deaths is her death in that movie. She she rules in that. And she's been, yes, I mean, you look at her filmography and she's like, it's very predictable that it's like she's been acting regularly throughout the 90s, giving good performances. And you're like, OK, she's in Jungle Fever, House Party 2, Juice. She's in Set It Off. She's in Hoodlum. She's in Living Out Loud, right? Then she starts to like transition into white Hollywood. Then you get like Sphere, the bone collector, bringing out the dead. Then she gets the Chicago Oscar nomination and people are like, who knew Queen Latifah could act? And it's like, motherfucker, she's been acting for she's 12 been, years. She's been acting for a really long time. What are you talking oh, speaking, about? Oh, yeah. I she's forgot. great I was, Sphere. I was actually just on the Bechtel cast talking about Set It Off. So people should listen to that episode. I talk a lot about Queen Latifah in that one. I listened to that episode. Great <laughs> um, podcast. Great episode. She gets, uh, isn't she the one who gets eaten by the jellyfish or the, yeah, it's the jellyfish in Sphere. Yeah. Sphere is a great movie. We should do Sphere. I've, Let's do Sphere I've never, seen, I've never seen this Sphere. Okay. Oh, it's Mary Levinson, right? Listen, what if there was a Sphere? What if it was under the water? What's up with okay. the Sphere? You gotta find okay. out. Only four people can find out Dustin Hoffman, Sharon Stone, Samuel Jackson, Queen Latifah. They're going to go look at the sphere. All kinds of things are going to happen. There's going to be jellyfish. No one's going to have a good time. The movie will be critically reviled in a box office bomb. It's incredibly long and it's great. I love it. Sounds like the abyss. It's very, it's, it's very abyss. From the director of Rain Man comes a sci-fi movie that asks, what would Dustin Hoffman and Sharon Stone do in space together? (laughs) Except they're underwater. But, but, Queen Latifah, right? Yeah, uh, so, fantastic actress. Right, overnight white Hollywood discovery, who knew? Now she has this run as like a leading movie star where it's uh, uh, Bring You Down the House comes out right after her Oscar nomination and it is does. the biggest fucking hit in the world. It's so that- humongously <laughs> no, we, we can't. I mean, we've talked about it before, but please go ahead, Jordan. I... 
Bring down the house. Let's, let's bring down the house for a second. One of the worst <laughs> movies ever made. It's not a good movie. It, it's a movie that has puzzled me for years. Like I have seen bringing down the house so many times and every single time I'm just like, what? What? <laughs> you see, he what? is very uptight. Yes, I know, don't think you're getting it. He's lonely. Yes. And she she was in prison and she learned all kinds of things. I believe right. she has she has broken out of prison in that movie, right? It's not like she's been released. <laughs> like I think she's like escaped. No, I think like, she's, she's been trying released. to prove her innocence. Oh, she is. Right. You're right. And and Jordan, I don't want to mansplain bringing down the house for you, but the thing you need to understand because it's subtle. And a lot of mm-hmm. people don't get it when they watch the yeah. movie is that Eugene Levy is in Bring It Down the House and Queen Latifah has him straight tripping, boo. That's okay. Right. But that's subtext. That's, right. that's, that's right. subtext. So Eugene Levy in this in that movie, I think about him constantly. Like when I, I don't know why, like when I just when I just think about like sometimes when I think I say the word white people, I'm thinking about Eugene Levy in Bringing Down the House. That, that was certainly cornrows. Yeah, that's what he was going for. I guess he was like, I yes. will be white people. <laughs> he he was 100 percent white. I, I really appreciate how much he committed to being like, man, aren't white people stupid? It's just like, yeah, wow. Right. You know, the man, the man is a satirical wrong. eye. Yeah, sure. But I also kind of wanted to, <sighs> that movie, I kind of want to do it on Bad Romance just because of how weirdly, how it's set up to be like a rom-com and then it's not yes. because, because like, the world just could not imagine Steve Martin and Queen Latifah, but it's like a it's like a rom com without the sex. Like right. she like comes in and changes his life, but like then they don't fuck. And, and they meet <laughs> from being like on an online dating website. Like the premise that's set up is he thinks they're gonna date. But she ends he she ends up with Eugene Levy. He gets back together with Gene Smart, I believe, right. who is like Queen his Latifah estranged fixes wife his or whatever. Right. Yes. Yeah, um, Queen Latifah fixes his white marriage because, you know, God forbid. Well, she has everyone she's straight tripping the house. I don't know. <laughs> but then here's the big like post Oscar, post bringing down the house. Queen Latifah has the keys to Hollywood run. Then you get uh, Taxi. She has yeah. a small part in the cookout, which she produces. Then she has the cameo in Barbershop 2 which is only to establish backdoor beauty shop spinoff. Like they announce in Variety, Queen Latifah will be appearing in Barbershop 2 solely to launch a spinoff film. So then it's Beauty Shop, uh, Stranger Than Fiction, where she's supporting, but that's like the hottest screenplay in Hollywood. She's the new main character in Ice Age, Last Holiday. Okay, Last Holiday. She's great in Last Holiday. I haven't seen that movie in years. That's sort of an odd movie, though, because it's like it's about her dying. Dying. Like Hollywood would never make a movie like that anymore. That's sort of like weird and melancholy and like presented as a romantic comedy drama. Is it her? And LL Wait, who's your love interest? LL Cool J, right? Right. And you're remaking an Alec Guinness comedy, right? Is it? Oh, is ah. it? Wait, really? Yes, I think it is. No, you're right. It is. Yes. It's uh, yes. an but, old, but British like film. an obscure British comedy. Yeah. Um, then Hairspray, which she's very good in. Yeah. yeah. She's great in Hairspray. And then this is when she starts to slow down again. It's like she does Mad Money, which doesn't exist. <laughs> Mad Money didn't really work out for 
anyone involved. I love involved. Mad Money. Really? Though. Really? I really do. I You're love a Mad, Mad Money, Money fan? I watched it for the first time this year and I was just like, oh my God, why have I never watched this before? I like Mad Money in the sense that like they are very aware of like the class differences and the race differences in it. I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was really smart. I thought it could be way worse than it was. They're stealing money that is going to be like destroyed, right? Like it's like they're going to they're going to steal money that is about to expire essentially, right? Diane yes. Keaton, Katie Holmes, Queen Latifah. Right. I forgot Great. it's it's written and directed by Callie Curry who did Thelma and Louise. Yeah. Did the screenplay for Thelma and Louise, yeah. Yeah. Queen Latifah and Queen Latifah's great in Mad Money. Like she's way better than everyone else in that movie because she's taking it seriously. I mean, she was a great like comedy movie star. She had this run and she would do like supporting roles in between. And I think she's a very good dramatic actress as well. But she had this surprisingly fertile run as like a leading comedy lady. And then yeah, now you got just right. Well, just the tail end of the sort of thing you're talking about. Right, because now she starts to transition more into like ensemble. So after Mad Money, what happens in Vegas is a very small role. Secret Life of Bees, she's first build. You get a sense that she was the person they needed to get the financing for the movie. Like she's really sort of extending herself, playing a role that was written for an older actress because her movie stardom's so big at the time. And then it's like Valentine's Day ensemble just writes her sort of last lead. Dilemma is supporting. And then it's like two years until Joyful Noise, which is her and uh, Dolly Parton. And then she doesn't really do a big movie role again until Girls Trip five years later. I believe Joyful Noise, is that not, is that like a, a, you know, choir versus choir movie? Yeah. It's like a bring it on with choirs? Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, that's what it is. But she does a five, there's like a five year gap pretty much there where it's like, you know, small role in 22 Jump Street, tiny role in Miracles from Heaven another Ice Age movie and Girls Trip. And that's all that happens between Joyful Noise and Girls Trip. You're forgetting, you're forgetting Bessie. Uh, where she played Bessie Smith, which was a TV movie, but it was, yes. you know, uh, written directed by Dee Reese. I love Bessie. Pretty good movie. Yeah. Uh, she was nominated for an Emmy, I guess. But, you know, like, but she's good in that. And that that seemed like sort of passion projecty for her. And she does and Steel she, Magnolias for TV and she does Star. She did that show she's Star. She's great in Steel right. Magnolias, too. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've never but, seen Star. She kind of just pivots to TV. And then now she was supposed to before the pandemic, I think it's still happening, but obviously they never uh, were able to uh, really start production and they can't yet. Um, she's supposed to do a reboot of The Equalizer for CBS. That's right. With she's her gonna, playing she's The Equalizer. Equalize. Yeah. Uh, which I so badly wanted to play the computer nerd on. I think you remember, really? David. I was losing I my mind. It was like the only pilot that I was like, I would love to do this. You would love to also to play the role that they're always telling you, like to uh, right, like yeah, the, yeah, right. I feel like computer nerd. You often avoid because it's like you know Agreed. been there, done that a little bit. But yeah. but there were two X factors, three X factors. One films in New York. I was like great, right? Two, I have heard such great things about Queen Latifah, like just her fucking professionalism on set and her decency as a human being. I was like, man, I would love to work on a show where Queen Latifah is the star and the producer and presumably bullshit will not fly and no one will be an asshole. Remember, she also had a talk show. I forgot about that. She did that for Uh, a year. 
Couple Number years. three, it was a better written computer nerd than most of those shows. Mm. Um, sure. But that's what she's supposed to do now. She's supposed to do the equalizer for CBS. Could I talk about Bessie one more time? Please. Please. <laughs> okay, so Bessie is one of those movies where I'm I'm a huge fan of Bessie. I I wrote about it. I'm obsessed with it. Um, mostly just because it's one of the few movies where like Black women are gay. Like, it's just the fact that if it had been theatrically released, I feel like her career, her like film career would have jump started. But instead, it's on HBO, where I feel like not a lot of people watched it. And it's like we have Queen Latifah being mentored by Monique and no one is talking about it. I think Monique's great in it. Um, And Monique so rarely acts, too. So, like, it was genuinely exciting. And Monique is like, like Monique maybe kind of makes the movie because the movie I love the movie I think it's great Monique I think is what stops it from being like as sad as it could be because she's such like an interesting like presence in the film I feel like you know what I mean since you actually watched it yes I just love her I I know I don't know like why Monique doesn't make a lot of movies I'm sure there's a lot of things going into that but like anytime I see her in a movie it is I was just looking at Monique's she delivers uh, recent films, almost Christmas, Blackbird. Like anytime I've, she pops up in something, she's great. But yes, she's playing Ma Rainey and Bessie. She's very funny. She's very, I don't know, intense. How to how to describe? Yes, Monique. yeah, she's like yes. very intense. Anyway, yeah. I just I just need anyone who's listening to this to please watch Bessie. Yeah, Bessie yeah, I, I just, would assume yeah. it's on HBO, it you know, is, Max yeah. or whatever, right? It has to be. I mean, was this before or after we started recording where we were talking about Native Son and how that also fell into like an HBO black hole that I feel like? Yeah, we uh, this is during recording. The, yeah, the tale also fell into that. I'm mad. Yeah. I've been mad. I was just complaining about like how great the tale is and yeah. how few people know about it. I need to just make a list of just like HBO movies that are great. Like Bad Education bad is education. there. Yes. I'm just like, yes. I want yeah. people to watch Bad Education. Right. It's one of those things where I feel like it's like if you have made a small movie like The Tale or Bad Education or Native Son, you know, and HBO comes knocking and they're like, we're going to pay you $10 million for the rights. Like, it's so hard to say no because it's like, look, this means that everyone makes their money and like... Yeah you know, everyone is made whole and the movie will get seen. It'll be, but like it, it sadly does kind of like sweep it into a category of movies that get kind of ignored. Like the tale should have been one of the big movies, like critically of 2018. And and it wasn't like it played at Sundance and everyone was like, fuck Laura Dern might win the Oscar for this. And then it just went to TV and no one really engaged with it. And I feel like very often HBO will pay money big money and it's also the promise of we're going to put all our energy behind this like if a studio releases this they might release it on four screens and it might be one of 20 movies they have this oscar season we'll give this like a real star birth but it feels like it's very often movies that either are viewed as difficult subject matter or unconventional subject matter and and it's just, just the kind of they, mid-budgety movie where it's right. like you know like well how is how are we help making this pop you know right now, i don't know this is kind of the point i want to make by going through latifa here you have this person who is like a very prominent pop culture figure for 20 years right like in the 90s sitcom star incredibly successful music star and then is starring in like a lot of canonically important black films then the 2000s she translates she like goes over into mainstream hollywood is a comedy star is ensemble gets an oscar nomination like does all these big things and then it feels like in the late 2000s she goes like 
okay, I have passion projects that I want to make. I want to play Bessie Smith. I want to do Steel Magnolias. And Hollywood's like, yeah, you should go to TV. Like, right. it was... Yeah. The Don't you want to be she, the next Ellen? Right. Maybe like she, she did. I mean, maybe she did for all but I know. It but it does feel it like is, yeah. she, like, tried to cash in her capital on these, like, big passion projects. And they were like, eh, you're not really a movie star anymore. And she doesn't really get to be in movies again until she plays the fourth lead in Girls Trip, which she's very good at. Yeah, but yeah, is it, is, it is weird. Because, like, uh, just, like, thinking about Steel Magnolias and Bessie, which are both, like... Really, really good. She's really yeah, great. She's in great Steel in Magnolias. Both. Steel Magnolias is actually like one of the best casted remakes I've ever seen. Yeah, it had, it had Jill Scott. Everyone right? works. Who it else was in the shots? Jill Scott. Um, God, uh, I'm Alfred Woodard. Alfred Woodard is in yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, like it's it's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I uh, but I kind of feel like there's not room for that kind of black movie on the big screen right. right now. And I can't say why that is the, the huge problem of just like so many kinds of movies that we are, we are fondly recalling as we speak right now, just yeah. don't seem to be able to exist in cinemas anymore, which is very frustrating. Like, I don't know if secret life of bees exists in 2020. Does no. it like, Maybe I don't, I don't like a straight know. to Netflix situation. Probably, right? Like, you know, I know they still make bestseller, you know, to movie trend. Like, but like right. I, I I'm not sure. Yeah, it probably is a TV movie now or a miniseries well, or something. I mean, what? The help is four years after this and is a box office juggernaut and is also a a steaming pie of poop. It is mm. a garbage movie, but that it it feels like like watching this movie, you kind of have to compare it to the help. Unfortunately. Yeah. Right. The difference, the, the, the helpful difference is like, at least Dakota Fanning is a child. Like at least yeah. she, her being astonished by these things is a little more believable in the help where fucking Emma Stone's like a time traveler. And you're like, where have you been woman? You're a grown ass person. Like what do you, how, why are you behaving this way? But also it's like, at least, I, I, this is sound perverse the way I say it, but like at least the Dakota Fanning character has her own struggles in this movie and bonds sure. with other women over like you know the the common sort of disenfranchisement they feel with the world rather than the help where Emma Stone's like, huh, this like I can use this to become a very successful writer. I can like exploit other people's Skeeter? suffering. Yes, I'm very aware of that. Um, but that movie is like a lot more Pat is a lot less interested in the interior lives of the help, despite being the title of the fucking film. Yeah. Uh, uh, Secret Life of Bees is kind of like, you know what? You know, if you just hang out with the black people, you know, they're much they're much cooler. They're much more chill. They have better. It's mostly because like in the end, she's just like living with these black women. Right. And it's just like the idea is that like her life is going to be so much better because she is living with those black women, which I think is an interesting thing that they don't really like lean into more. This idea that like everybody in the movie that is terrible is white except yes. for her. <laughs> that, that is the juice to this movie for me is as a hangout movie is this weird 60s like we got this one pink house where everything is pretty cool as long as we're staying within these yeah. walls they have a line yeah. about how it's like kind of cut off from the rest of the world and i know the same things don't happen inside the house but it reminded me of mother you really don't see any of the world outside of it to the point where you're like 
is she dead? Like, it's just like so <laughs> well, also, heavenly right, and yeah, perfect. Right, exactly. Did she just arrive, right? Like, did she actually fall down a hill and die? Yeah. <laughs> just yeah, imagine. Like, I, just, I just love that, like, when they're in the, have the whole dinner scene, and they're all those black women, including the one who's like, we haven't even talked about Tristan Wilde's yet, but I noticed sure. that the, Tristan, Wilde's, Tristan Wilde's mother is played by the actress who played La Fonda in Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, right. Chandrella Avery, I believe. Yeah, yeah th- those scenes and then like the church scene where it's like they have like reordered how they approach these things. Like they don't do it like however they're supposed to do it. And that's right. They, they've made their own community. Their house almost feels like Brigadoon, but it's a time portal to a future that we still haven't achieved. Yeah, it's like people are visiting and it's like this like oasis and like Tristan Wilds is coming in and he's chilling. And I still don't know why Tristan Wilds is there or what he's doing, especially because like, what is his point in this movie? Making honey. It's nice to see him. Yeah, it's (laughs) nice to see him. I, you know, I remember when he was on The Wire. Uh, There was another thing on the special features that really jumped out to me where uh, Gina was talking about trying to like find her into the material she also said that like they offered her this right in like 2002 or 2003 and as she said many times that we've talked about on this podcast after doing uh, disappearing acts and loving basketball back to back she was super burned out and is like i want to wait a while before i make my next movie so she said they sent it to her and she just left it in her closet for three years and didn't even look at it until like 2006 or 2005. Um, but she said when she read it, she what she was interested in was um, she was talking to uh, her, her husband, uh, Reggie Rockbythewood, and his parents uh, grew up in the South during the Civil Rights Movement, and she was asking them what it was like, and they said, well, it was interesting because it was this time of great upheaval, and there was a lot of awfulness going on, but there was also a sense of hope. But I feel like the thing that people don't talk about is we were still just living our lives on a day-to-day basis. Like movies about that time tend to make it seem like everything that was going on was incredibly uh, politically sort of like loaded. When in fact, we were like eating food and we were falling in love and we were tending to our gardens. And like life does continue in all these very dramatic times. A thing that I think we're all experiencing right now where it like feels like the world is on fire And yet there are things we do on a day-to-day basis that have some sense of normalcy, even if they're tinged with the awareness of what's going on at the world at large. And that's sort of like, I feel like the movie that Gina's really into is like, can you have this house that almost feels like a sci-fi conceit where like life progresses one step at a time and these small gestures have like huge implications, but then you step outside of the house and like you get arrested at a movie theater. You yeah, know? yeah. They don't even talk about like let's uh, let's sit together when we get to the you know what I mean. Like it just you just see them yeah uh, doing it. But there's also there's the dynamic that August talks about with um, Lily at the end when they're sort of sharing you know when they're finally talking about her mom where she's like I was your mom's maid like I was her nanny right you know I think like that scene kind of rules that scene's good and she's like and that's a dynamic I did not want to repeat right you know they're sort of talking about like you know this this needed to be different that's why i didn't tell you about this and so many so many times in movies like this there's that scene where it's like well i didn't tell you because you just weren't ready which really just means like because 
because uh, we needed to have this scene later in the movie. But like that conversation makes a lot of sense. Like when they finally have it and sort of open up to each other. I also think that that scene is so well written and so well acted from Latifah's vantage point, which is like, she takes that pause. I mean, what Dakota Fanning asked her, like, did you love my mother? And Latifah sort of says like, I mean, I loved her like with qualifiers. Right. She's like, what do you mean? In another version of this movie, you'd expect that that's all they'd say about it and brush past it. And Latifah like unpacks it. And she's like, look, it's like it's an incredibly unbalanced relationship. That's not something that is conducive to an honest form of love. You know, we were so unequal that despite me feeling probably some sort of sense of like maternal love for her, it was wrapped up in this really like contradictory relationship. Yeah, she can order her around like, yeah. And I feel like that's kind of. The fact that at the end of the movie, she ends up sort of claiming mothership of the Dakota Fanning character, because that is actually closer to a mother daughter relationship rather than this weird transactional, like uh, forced indentured like job sort of relationship, you know? Yeah, that's interesting to me. I mean, there's like a lot of interesting threads while you were talking, I was just thinking about imitation of life and like, what if? Yeah, I, it's like there's so many like interesting dynamics and like that one. I'm not one of those people that thinks that like old movies are better, but I do think that like they were a bit more curious about this stuff. Like they were like a lot of the curiosity led in like to bad directions and weird directions and, you know, problematic directions. But I don't know. There's just like a little bit more curiosity of like, how is this going to work black people and white people together? What are we doing? (laughs) And that, yeah. And that, and that scene with them talking about that relationship made me think of that. I, I think like Hollywood used to be a lot more interested in making what they would call issues pictures And being like, there is a thing, there is a discourse going on in our culture, and we need to make a film that unpacks it. And that unpacking would usually be a series of very complicated conversations between actors. And it feels like more and more Hollywood has advanced or or rather sort of degressed to wanting to make films that are just kind of like, this is what happened in the past and we solved it, book closed. Well, this came out like a month before Obama's elected president. Like I was watching yep. an interview with Alicia Keys and she was like, and I sure hope he's elected. And you're like, oh, wow, there was like a time frame when we weren't sure that wasn't going to like was going to happen. Yeah. And it just feels like this movie is like of that time where it's just kind of focused on the hope of that. The behind the right. scenes stuff, they're talking a lot about living through the Bush era and the disenfranchisement of the Bush era. And like once again, having this incredible distrust of our country. Um, but, but I do think, yeah, Jordan, like the, we've moved beyond wanting to make films in a Hollywood studio level that really engage with difficult conversations. Yeah. Because like a lot of films now, like it's almost like the assumption is that they're made on the assumption that everyone who is watching the movie is progressive yes, or at least knows what that means. And so we don't really have to like, we don't have to explain how this is bad or why this is bad. Or we just said it was bad and it was then. And there were these people who fought 
and <laughs> it's just like I find it to be a very very boring. Well, very and there's boring. the character like who's like, well, I, I'm the racist, you know, like they're like right, yes. like there's the movie that's a, and then there's the one character's like some people are like, oh well, I, I I approve of this progress, and then another character's like, well, I don't approve at all. Right. I'm the villain now, and that's the who Sam I'm going to be and here. The Kevin Costner, right. yeah. This is only like maybe tangentially related, but I recently watched um, Charles Burnett's um, The Glass Shield. Great movie. Um, it's about a black cop who like he becomes a cop because he wants to be a hero and like basically finds out, oh, it's impossible to be a hero. I feel like The Glass Shield is like a movie about how being a cop is just inherently bad and there's like nothing that you can do to fix it. It's much more about him being like, told like you have to abide by the rules of you know the brotherhood of policing right like you know which is essentially like whatever we do you you know no snitching and we're you know we're allowed to behave the way we want over whatever idealistic notions you had of like you know being the i believe he's supposed to be like the first black deputy at the sheriff's department right like he's you know he's supposed to you know he's like a a milestone figure yeah, and I so I was watching that, and then I was thinking about Black Klansman, a movie that I do not like, um, and it basically has a very similar kind of like setup. But then it goes like there are the bad cop, the bad cops, mm. and there are the good cops, sure. and like you can choose to be a good cop, and that's how you fix it. <laughs> so, and watch, and like I just that's kind of how I feel about like films like from like. 2008 on where like that's the kind of attitude it's just like they're the good people and they're over there and you just have to be over there with where the good people are whereas like if i watch we're watching the black the the glass shield actually like i was you know stirred intellectually by a film like it made me think about dynamics you know what i it's mean a good movie. i like that movie yeah. a lot i mean i think spike lee's great cop movie is inside man because that movie is very upfront about everything terrible about the nypd mm. while still being like i am delivering you a really like slick fun you know heist movie but like it makes, you know, it has all those sequences where like the weird in- industry of the NYPD is being deployed, like the fences, the machinery, the vehicles, like, you know, they're like, they're hassling anyone coming out of the building, like, you know, all that stuff that's just kind of like bubbling away. Black Klansman, I feel like he got so hung up on the story, right? Like the Ron Stallworth story. And, and like, I don't know. I, I like Black Klansman. Okay. I, I have a handful well, of know, things I want to say. I mean, one is... I I remember during the Black Klansman Oscar campaign season uh, when like everyone was like, oh, my God, Spike's finally made a movie that's going to like cross over at the Oscars. Um, sure. I, I remember talking to a publicist who was part of the Black Klansman team at, at like a cocktail party. And she was saying to other people in the industry who had not watched Black Klansmen, like, no, you don't understand. Like, this movie's actually for white people. Like, that was kind of their selling point on the movie at the time, which ties into what you're saying, Jordan, and also talking about the way that race relations are often dealt with in major films now, which is, like, movies to make liberals feel good. Movies in which there are very clear-cut, like, these people are good, these people are bad, 
And the journey of the movie is watching the good people succeed over the bad people. And you get to feel good because you knew that the good people were good all along and the bad exactly. people were bad. Like they're very sort of self-serving to the audience. Um, I think Black Klansman is probably the best of those types of movies. Yes, I will say that. Yes, But it still he's, is he's that an box. extremely. He's an exciting filmmaker, even if you're not into the totally. movie. Right, exactly. Yeah, The Five Bloods is so much more interesting and fraught to me and the way it's discussing all these weird racial dynamics. Uh, you know, in, in a way that also I see the movie being misinterpreted a lot, but I think that's because it's a complicated text. Whereas Black Klansman is so cut and dry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Black Klansman, like, there are scenes that I really like, like the one where they're all dancing and, like, yes. all the, all of the, like, flourishes stuff I enjoy. But, yeah. And I will, because I was, like, I think about Secret Life of Bees, which is, like, the exact kind of movie that I would never want to watch simply because of how kind of, like, cut and dry things are. But, like, mm. but as a hangout movie, it actually works that's much where better. That's it works. Yeah. There's yeah, some good hangouts. I mean, there yeah. are yeah. good hangs in The Secret Life of Bees, and making honey seems fun, and the beekeeping scenes, of which there are not enough, are weird. <laughs> not enough bees in this are, movie. Are a great, they're a great metaphor, right? Because it's like, here we are in this incredibly, like, you know, like it's, it's very tense. It's sort of dangerous. There's bees flying around, but like, it's also sort of serene. Like she's approaching it in this very methodical and like, you know, uh, knowledgeable manner. And like, there's no fear because they're in this nice community that they built for themselves, but it's still like an intense and scary place. And like, I dug all the bee stuff. Bees are cool. Like bees are cool. I, Queen Latifah, like just sort of like, telling me about queen bees i'm like yeah i could i could do like a you know like a sort of like planet earth mini series length of that <laughs> like that would be great um so i was yeah could have done with more bees that's maybe maybe my biggest complaint about this movie not enough not enough bees oh we haven't really talked much about sophie okonedo yes okay i was gonna say I, I feel like we briefly have to touch on her and Bethany. So this is like Sophie Okonedo, who has been around forever, uh, is like a great British actress, did a lot of stage mm. and TV, does Ace Ventura when nature calls, where she plays the princess, you know, but then doesn't really have a breakout until like Dirty Pretty Things in 2002 and then Hotel Rwanda in 2004. She doesn't do that many movies uh, from 1991 to 2004. And then she gets a surprise Oscar nomination uh, for Hotel Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Very deserved. Then she has like a run of a couple kind of like post Oscar nomination paycheck roles. Eon Flux, which I feel like I need to watch now. She's like the the wise. I, I don't know. What does she play in it? Because I both her and uh, uh, Frances McDormand seem to be playing like omniscient leader characters right uh i don't know i i have never yeah we should do kusama i just think it's, every it's element sure. of that movie is fascinating and it was written off at the time and now i feel like i need to watch it because i'm like i like kusama i like Charlize theron doing action but then this is like 2008 this is four years after Rwanda. I feel like everyone's pegging her as like, this is the big Oscar performance. This is the key supporting role. This is like the most classically Oscar character. And I can't figure out what I think of this performance. Yeah, I, I don't. 
You know, when I was when I was on this podcast before, and we had to talk about the Tandy. Tandy I was about to say it. It is similar. It's a similar fine line thing. I okay. Here's the thing, though. I think that uh, Sophie does like a better job than Tandy Newton in keeping this character reined in. I think so too. Yeah. Um, but I don't. I still don't understand her. Like, she's a very mysterious character to me. <laughs> well, well, she's sort of oddly defined where it, it's like, this is sort of a woman post-breakdown. They try to make it seem like rather than someone who was born developmentally disabled yeah. in any sort of way. I was kind of, I was hoping they would say, I don't know, I, maybe it says it in the book, like how her sister died. It seemed... The way I kind of chose to see it for it to make sense was that basically she was like developmentally stunted in a way or emotionally kind of stunted when she went through such an awful thing as like the loss of a sister and the loss of like right. a twin. Well, but they also they talk about it, like unpack it a little bit in that her relationship with her sister was so symbiotic, which I feel like right. is often the case with twins at a young age. I mean, you hear all these stories about twins having their own sort of secret language um, you know, it's often like parents of twins have a hard time teaching them to speak because twins figure out how to communicate with each other in a way that is not conventionally verbal. Um, so it's the idea that like they're so bonded. She's perhaps a more empathetic person to begin with. And that, you know, she has this sort of breakdown after her sister dies, this sort of like post-traumatic breakdown and that they bring her to all these doctors who can't diagnose what's wrong with her, but just want to institutionalize her. And so they have, like, foregone any sort of institutionalization uh, and tried to figure out how to, like, teach May to cope on her own. But it is very much this kind of classic, like, Oscar-y, you're playing someone who is sort of childlike and sees the world differently performance with a lot of affectation. I feel like she does it better than most but much like mm-hmm. Jordan, you're saying this is the exact type of movie you don't like. That's sort of the exact type of performance I'm least interested in. It, it, it's a character that's tough. Yeah, no, I yeah, I really don't like that kind of thing. But she, I like the actress so much that it didn't yep. piss me off. I yeah. think as much as it would have. I, I think she does it. She's a good actor. Pretty well, but it does still fall into that thing of like actors viewing. a a character's challenges as an opportunity for a skill piece. You know, it becomes that sort of show-off-y, like, look how well I can play this person's circumstances thing. That always feels a little gross to me. Yeah, you know, the Ed Norton specialty. Yes, Yes. we talked about this, I feel like, (laughs) on Beloved as well. The Edward Norton thing of just like, oh my god, look how many ticks I get to play here. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know. She's 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 fine. I you know, it's weird that she gets the death because I don't know. It's one of those things where like that. I guess that is the kind of character that would get best supporting someone who's like not there for very much Mm -hmm. and then dies and cries a lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and it also feels like a bummer because it's that kind of like, oh, this character is the innocent who needs to die as like the martyr for everyone else to go through some catharsis. The whole construction of it feels kind of cynical to me. 
Um, but last- it's very typical to these kinds of yeah, movies that there's absolutely. like, right, there will be a big death in the third act and it will sort of shake everything up. And as you say, right. Yeah. The last performance I want to talk about very briefly before we get to the box office game is this is just the, the height of Paul Bettany's like, you know what? I absolutely do not want to be a conventionally sexy movie star run where Hollywood <laughs> sure. is just like, this guy is so handsome and so charming. And he's like, Oh, only play the least appealing people in the world. <laughs> right. And he's doing like nope. this and Thank Da Vinci you. code. Yeah. Da Vinci code for sure. He plays a lot of villains. I, you know, he's still in his movie star period because legion is after this where he's a shirtless angel with a machine gun so but that is the weirdest movie to want to finally be a conventional movie star in he's like oh you guys want me to be like a buff superhero i'll do legion which is fucking bug nuts and made two (laughs) dollars he also does priest he did both of those when did he he do knight's tale is that early 2000 knight's tale that's 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 breakout no that's That's when everyone's like fuck this guy is outrageous like he's in gangster number one is young malcolm mcdowell and everyone in britain is like oh this guy's like a talent and then he has knight's tale and a beautiful mind in the same year right and And knight's tale was brian hedgeland wanted him to play the heath ledger role and they went to the studio and they were like, absolutely not. You have to get someone who's also already well known. So he writes that best friend character. It, he, for no, it's Paul Jeffrey Bettany. Chaucer. He plays Cha- Jeffrey Chaucer Insane. as his best friend and hype man. It's great. It's a great performance. What a, what a perfect movie. It's Which a perfect movie. Think? Obviously, his performance <laughs> in Master Commander is one of the great like, you know, things in that I've experienced in my life that I but think this about is the all the point, time is like all these directors were like, fuck, Bettany, that guy's got the juice. Right. And so everyone gives him the best friend role to like these big movie stars. And he's playing like Heath Ledger's best friend, Russell Crowe's best friend twice. And people are like, come on, this is like it's going to happen. Right. The guy's so handsome. He's so charming. When you see him in interviews, he does Wimbledon which is like, here we go, rom-com, him, Kirsten Dunst, and he always talks about rom-com. And he like hated it. He was like, I hate this. I don't like playing these types of characters. I'm done. And then he's just like, villain, 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 scumbag, scumbag. Like Dogsville, Firewall, Da Vinci Code, the only big movie he stars in playing a non-creep is the voice of Jarvis and Iron Man. And then he's like doubling down. Secret Life of Bees. Young Victoria. He's like, I want to direct a film. Or no, no, he didn't direct Creation. I always think no, he did. That was a passion project for him, but he didn't direct it. I think right. that he just wanted to do that. That's his passion project. I think he put a lot of uh his heft into that and when it didn't work that's when his career starts to wind right. down he does priest and, and says, legion with both bomb right. and then it, the thing that saves him is being brought back into avengers is, is the vision thing yeah right uh, um, but, but since but, then know, his career is like what four marvel movies and solo he hasn't well, done he that has this of- movie at Sundance called Uncle Frank that he's the star of that he's good in. It's a very big actory performance. Another Southern movie. Uh, it's a bad movie. Capital B mm. bad movie. Alan Ball, you know, 1970s road movie. Gay guy goes home, confronts his past. Everything <laughs> about it. Like, you know how that sounds annoying? It's annoying, but he is good. He he is certainly good. And it's sort of one of those things you're like, oh yeah, right. I mean, if you let him at something. I do love 
the like actors, whenever they're trying to be like, yeah, we're really going for it. They want to play like a southerner. Why does everybody want to play a southerner? Everyone is so Br- bad Brits, at it. Brits love the accents. They just love I to fuck it. around with accents. <laughs> I, I forgot. He also he played uh, the Unabomber in that in right. the Unabomber show. I never watched that. I, but, I uh, think that's it's another, another dang ass freak. I think it's another like skill piece talent show thing, Jordan. I think it's like the Southern accent is like such a meal as an actor. And you have so many like regional specificities depending on what era you're in and what specific city and state you're in that actors are just like, let me at it. Let me at it. I want to spend six months listening to like tapes of like Southern Baptist <laughs> in the 1970s. Like they just love that God. kind of shit. Uh, Uncle Frank. Yeah. I assume one day when the coronavirus subsides, Uncle Frank will be unleashed on society and then we'll all get to deal with that fucking thing. But I saw it. Wait, was that at Sundance this year? Yeah. Yeah. It got bought by somebody. Okay, yeah. No, I mostly saw good movies at Sundance. Yeah. This I year. actually I had a great here. Sundance and Uncle Frank was one where I was like sitting down and I was like, Alan Ball, I don't know about this. And then, you know, it's uh, Amazon bought it. So I guess Amazon will. All right, oh, whatever. Uh, terrible company. Uh, it's on many bad things. Guys, uh, let's play is, the box office game. Yeah. Unless we, oh, go ahead, Griffin. No, all I was going to say is it's just wild to think that within this calendar year, Sundance happened like properly. Like at the yeah. last moment that you could have a film festival, Sundance happened. A lot of big movies premiered. Big acquisitions happened. And now we're like, will there ever be a film festival again? Will movies <laughs> ever be released in theaters? But that was like. Tiff is going to be in t- online for press. Yeah, like, I think what? the can't press wait isn't is coming. At can't all. wait to log on for Tiff. Tiff.com. <laughs> <laughs> okay, box office game. Box office All right, this game. is a wild box office game. It's October 17, 2008. Secret Life of Bees is opening to $10 million at number three. It makes 37. Yeah, it's you a know. big release. And you're also okay. like, it probably never stops being played in English classes. As you said, Jordan, this is such a yeah. high school, middle school. Yes, I assume it's it's in the mix and some cable channel. And I don't know. Look, Who knows? the book continues to sell well. There was a Secret sure. Life of Bees musical that was about to open yes. off Broadway with Lashans and uh, Lynn Nottage wrote the adaptation with Duncan Sheik writing the music. Wow. Maybe it's good. Sam Gold directed it. Like it was like hyped up as like this might be a big Broadway musical and then Broadway shut down as well. But it's like uh, clearly this material still seems to have uh, juice. I don't know. People like finding about that secret life that bees live. Um, You think they're going to have real bees on stage? They should. They should unleash (laughs) them. Every performance. The bees are the chorus. They're a bunch of dancers. People in bee costumes like the early SNL. It's just Jerry Seinfeld from Bee Movie, like descending from the ceiling. I I think Jordan is right. I think they should reuse the exact Killer Bees costumes. I think the entire ensemble of dancers and chorus singers should be wearing Elliot Gould's sweaty bee costume from 1976. (laughs) Now, number one at the box office is a video game movie. In uh, 2008. It's new this weekend. Yes. Um, so it's not Silent Hill. No, it's unfortunately a video game I've played so many times, and I have played really? its sequel. Do um, you like the game? I do like the game. It's absurd, but I like the first two games. I did not like the third one. Um, Here, here's a question. Um, was this like, 
was this a pretty quick adaptation or was it in the works for a while after the game? Like, it, what's was, the space it was in the, the works game? seven years. It was in the works wow. for a while, but it was one of those video games, even though it came out back, you know, in, when video games were, you know, a little, a little less cinematic. Like that, it kind of felt like they were like, turn this into a movie. Like it was oh, a very movie. Oh, video it's Max game. Payne. That's right. Yes. I remember With, uh, yes. Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, because that game was so cinematic. I loved that first game, too, when it came out. Everyone's like, oh, man, it just feels like you're playing a movie. And then by the time they made it into a movie, everyone's like, we don't really need to see this. Yeah, Max Payne. That's okay. His Max name's Payne. Max Payne. He feels pain. I have no idea what that is, but okay. okay. Ma- yeah. Well, Mark in, Wahlberg in the video game, and shoots he, people. Yeah, you're a, you're a cop whose family gets murdered, and then you go on the rampage. Um, but uh, in the video game, you could go into bullet time because it was right after the matrix. So you could slow things down. David, you are um, leaving out the most important detail. What? Th- that's the element that made everyone think, Oh my God, this game is so cinematic. You get to do bullet time sequence. What activates bullet time sequence? No, you, it's not taking pills. If that's what you're about to say. Really? I remember it being no. that you would take painkillers. No. And you then take go into pillars to reduce your, you know, to, to, to heal yourself. Are you sure? You, you, the yes, don't you give enter bullet time. time by right clicking. Come on, I played Max Payne. Let's not, okay, let's, let's not mess around. Max Payne. This is so because I was I was a film snob in in high school, so I would never watch anything like this. I was just <laughs> watching. <laughs> you you didn't so... want to see Max Payne. The guy's name is Max Payne. Do you understand? There's a subtle illusion. I was an insufferable kid. I was an insufferable teen. Right. <laughs> I'm just um, looking at the Max Payne film Wikipedia entry. That's the one with Mila Kunis in it. I yes. knew Mila Kunis was in a yes. movie that I that I was like, I like her, but I don't want to watch this. Okay, that was Max Payne. Right, because this is the <laughs> same year as forgetting Sarah Marshall when she's yes. starting to like. Right. Um, I the poster on Wikipedia for Max Payne. You know, a movie that's called Max Payne, right, is not really like trafficking in subtlety. No. The the poster is Mark Wahlberg on his knees in the middle of a city street in the rain, yep. looking up to the heavens, holding yep. a, a handgun in each hand. Like, it looks like this is the most tortured anti-hero <laughs> He's in so much pain. It's black and white with the red, which is sort of like, it's like a Sin City ripoff. Yeah. They're going, they're clearly trying to sell you on like, this will be like Sin City. Yes. Or um, more like the spirit. It'll or, be like right. the spirit. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Okay. So Max Payne's um, so number Max one at Payne, the box number one. Huge uh, film. Number two, Griffin. It. It's a film that's come at the box office game before. It's a Disney film. It's a children's film. It's Bolt? an animal film. Bolt. It's not Bolt. It's not Bolt? No. 2008. Uh, it's live action or animated? Hybrid? I believe it's uh, live action, but certainly there's some... So then it's Beverly Hills Chihuahua. CG. Yeah. It's Beverly Hills Chihuahua. We've talked about it before. I can't remember when it came up, Griff, but it was in some other box office game. Um, I think it came up in our Raja Gosnell miniseries, did it not? <laughs> right, of course. Yes, directed by Never Raja Gosnell. Never been podcasted? Yeah. Um, so Beverly Hills Chihuahua, anyone wants to say anything about it? No. Okay. We're moving on to the number four film at the box office. Another Oscar failed Oscar play a biopic by a big director, but he's kind of on the downswing. 
I, I, I'm sorry to move backwards. I have one brief oh, thing Jesus. I want to say about Beverly Hills Chihuahua. You opened the floor. <laughs> I'm allowed I closed to say the floor. This. No, I right, reopened it for a second. Beverly Hills Chihuahua is an interesting phenomenon to me, which I feel like it's very paired up with Kangaroo Jack, where the trailer is focused on one sequence that is not indicative of the rest of the movie. So Kangaroo Jack was sold so entirely on this the sequence of Kangaroo Jack talking to the camera right, and rapping. They had to add more of it. No, most of the movie is a completely non-anthropomorphized kangaroo who's being chased by Anthony Anderson, Jerry O'Connell, because the kangaroo has money in its pouch, which they need to right. recover. And then well, there's and a jacket <laughs> that they put on the kangaroo for fun because they thought it was funny to take a selfie. Right, it's right. a pretty good premise. I mean, I'm laughing. <laughs> But there's one scene in which Jerry O'Connell gets knocked out and has this hallucination in which the kangaroo talks to him and raps. And the advertising campaign was entirely based around the talking kangaroo, which is not. I was so angry about that right. as a kid. Like, I was like, where is the kangaroo? <laughs> Who? I don't care about Anthony Anderson. I want the kangaroo. Right. They just made it seem like that was going to be the entire movie. Snow Dogs did a similar thing with, it, with its dream sequence, which is the only sequence where the dogs talk. Beverly Hills Chihuahua is even weirder because it is about talking chihuahuas, but the trailer was just this entirely CGI, like Aztec monument with chihuahuas doing a big Busby Berkeley number and singing. So they advertised it as if it was happy feet for chihuahuas. And then the movie is like a chihuahua gets lost and has to find its way back home. But, but is it yes. like more focused on humans or it's still just focused on the dogs? I'd say it's closer to like, it's it's half and half, but it's not what the trailer made it seem, which is a Happy Feet-esque. Here's just a world, a society of chihuahuas singing and dancing. Anyway, the floor is closed on Beverly Hills Chihuahua. It's a biopic, Griffin. Four. Number um, three is bees. Wait. Go ahead. Oh, can can I answer? Yes, Please. of course. Um, I think, is it Jay Edgar? It's not Jay Edgar. A great guest. Another biopic from a big director that no one gave a shit about. This is, is it a singer or is this era over? No, it's political. Life? So, you know, you're, you're in the right, in the right wheelhouse there. And is um, it a failed Oscar play? Does it get yeah, any nominations? No, no, no Oscars for this, this one. Oh, it's W. It's W. Oliver oh, Stone's yeah. W. Yeah. Released while Bush is still in office. A Josh very Brolin. bizarre movie. You know, not, not, a, not a bad movie. I was surprised at how much. I watched a bunch of political movies at the beginning of quarantine because mm. I was I don't I don't remember what my reasoning was. It was some kind of I was annoyed with white people and I wanted to understand how, why they mythologized the presidency. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. Um, <laughs> and so I was and I, and I so I watched W and like out of all of them, it was the one that annoyed me the least. But Tandy still... as Condi Rice. We were talking Tandy, of course. It's my favorite Tandy performance. I think she's excellent in it. She's, she's great right? in that movie. Did she <laughs> talk about that in her interview? She did. In and she, she said she felt very betrayed by the movie because she thought the film was going to be a lot toothier. And so she's giving this like very big performance. And then as the film went on, Oliver Stone kept on sort of like dulling it down. It is the ultimate, as you said, Jordan, it is the ultimate not bad, but also not good movie. Like it's I don't very that movie, yeah. bizarre that Oliver Stone made a George W. Bush film in 2008 while he was still in office. And the movie 
is just kind of in the middle. Like, it's not annoying, but it has no strong angle on anything outside of Tandy Newton, who I think is giving the the most sort of like pointed performance in the whole film. Yeah, I just like, I mean, it annoys me less than Vice does. Oh, so that's nice. It is oh, much Vice better is than fucking Vice. terrible. Yeah. I, mm, <laughs> God, I wonder, though, is is Vice more interesting than W? No, just because no, it's so bad. Better. W is better. <laughs> no, I'm not, talking about no. Better. I'm not talking about better. The better w, is just no. a conversation. W is more interesting because it is. It it's so milk toast, yes. and it was directed by a maniac. I don't. I whatever. Know. W. I don't know. It, yeah, it's a question mark. Like, that JFK, one. JFK, which I JFK, which I hate, is like I hate it, but like you can tell how much Oliver Stone loved making it, and to yeah. compare it to W, it doesn't make sense. It's very weird. <laughs> um, the Number fifth five. film. At the box office, I feel like it also comes up a lot for us. It's an actor having a big star moment. Uh, it is technically a hit, as Griffin, you often like to remind me. Um, they made a hundred million dollars. You know, like everything's going great for this guy. It's a thriller, sort of a chase movie, sort of a spy movie, but doesn't this guy's exist. Killing it. It's a spy movie. It does. Oh, it's Eagle Eye. Eagle Eye. Shia. I feel like I constantly have to remind people how consistent Shia's run was there. Right. But I do think, I think Eagle Eye is one of those fake hits where, yes, the studio crawled it over $100 million. Yes, people saw it, but not one person knows that movie exists. No. Uh, it like you know had no. It, I already it does, forgot which movie you're talking about. Eagle eye. Talking? The eye is eye. looking. It's you know. Eagle. Oh, oh. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. I've I've seen I've seen Eagle Eye. Oh, yeah. I do not remember it. <laughs> I remember that in the trailer, you know, because he's getting framed or whatever, right? He gets dragged into a room and he's like, "What's going on?" And Billy Bob Thornton comes in. And says, you're in a whole mess of trouble, son. Absolutely. And I'm yeah. like, I do not want Billy Bob Thornton to ever say that no. to me. That That's when you know you're in trouble. When Billy Bob Thornton is entering the room, he's clearly an agent of some sort of, you know, government. And he yeah. says, you're in a mess of trouble. It, worst Come case on. scenario. The, the reason I bring it up so much is that movie comes out sandwiched in between Indiana Jones and Transformers 2. And Spielberg was so behind Shia. Like, DreamWorks produces Disturbia. He plucks him from that and puts him in Transformers, then makes him the new, like, hope for Indiana Jones. And Spielberg kept on doing the press, being like, I'm telling you, this guy is Tom Hanks. Shia LaBeouf is Tom Hanks. He's going to be America's favorite, super likable, non-problematic movie star. And then Eagle Eye is the one where they were like, here you go. We're putting him in a new movie where it's not based on pre-existing IP after these blockbusters. He has a big sequel lined up. He's going to hit a hundred million by himself without any sort of attached franchise. And then after that, he does Transformers 2, Wall Street 2, Transformers 3, and then is like, I fucking hate being a movie star. That's when Shia starts like eating Hollywood. Remember when he watched all his movies at the IFC Center or Angelica, wherever it was? Look, I'm pro Shia. I just think that film's fascinating as the last gasp of... There's good and bad. The Spielberg movie star machinery. Like, we're going to make this guy work. Yeah. I still haven't seen Honey Boy. Have you guys seen it? Yeah, I'm a big fan. It's great. I love Honey Boy. Honey Boy's good. 
That is it. You've also got Ridley Scott's body of lies. Doesn't exist. You've got, uh, ooh, topical quarantine. Mm. Remember that movie? Uh, you also have opening at nine, ninth, uh, sex drive. The movie where the kids have to drive because of sex. Have sex. Yes. I was a big fan of sex. I mean, I was the right age to give. I remember it being cute. I love a movie title that just says exactly what it is. That is is exactly what it is. They have to go on a sex drive. Exactly those things. (laughs) And also, a lot of Amish people and also Fall Out Boy show up. Fall Out Boy is in it physically. Fall Out yes. Boy physically shows up. <laughs> they play in themselves. Sex drive. Yes. Wow. It's uh, great. <laughs> I, I remember Marsden, James Marsden pops yes, up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Seth Green plays one of the Amish people, right? Yes, he does. Yeah. He's very funny in that movie. <laughs> it's one of those tale end movies from the sort of like, you know, teen sex comedy like the American resurgence. Pie yeah. Yeah. Like of. it's one of the last ones where they're like, we can still just fucking throw this shit at the screen. Right. And I feel like it just eventually they just stopped, I guess. Yeah. Sex drive is really at the tail end. Like it's it's sex drive, it's easy A, and then I don't really know if there's really anything after yeah, easy I, I A. I guess for a easy long time. A right was sort of like, yeah, let's do a higher quality version of these. Right. <laughs> Not that I mean yeah. I like super bad or whatever, you know, but like right, it's yeah. They like learn about the scarlet letter and it's like interwoven right. into the plot as opposed right. to just like one of those. But sex drives feels like the last of like the R-rated sex-based yeah. teen comedy. Well, it's just like, right. what's Very the plot? Much. They want to fuck! Yeah. Oh, they do? <laughs> they oh, well, fuck. Tell me more. I don't know, they right. need a car? Like, you know, it's just... <laughs> right. you know, it's I, a I lot going on. I also love the joke in that movie where, like, Clark Duke is the hot guy. I love that joke. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, that's, that's, yeah. that's the weird joke of the movie. It's that, like, everybody thinks that he's hot, and that's supposed to be fun. I don't yeah. Like, no, but yeah. it's the hard joke, which I always find funny, which is just yeah. like put a character on screen who does not seem conventionally sexy and have everyone in the universe of the movie lose their minds over him. He literally right. like a woman, one of the Amish w- girls falls in love with him and he just moves into the Amish community. <laughs> like that's, right. that's the ending for that character. Pretty cool. Pretty yeah. fucking cool. But 2008 seems like a bad year for movies seems it like is, well it's 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 the slum dog year which is right. yeah so it's a weird year like i'm sure you know like there's good movies that you're but it is it's kind of the big it's the big year because that's the iron man year so it is kind of the beginning of the end and, in a way, and dark right? night it's, oh, it's and the dark year that night. breaks hollywood yeah yes, yes. it's the year oh, where it's I like oh that. fuck my favorite movie from 2008 was Synecdoche, New York. Uh, also yeah. my Ditto. favorite movie from 2008. One of my yeah. ten favorite movies of all time. Um, um, yeah. Yes, yes. But but 2008 is the year where Iron Man and Dark Knight like roll the die. They cast the die for the next 10 years of Hollywood. And also the year in which the Oscars start losing their fucking minds because they don't nominate Dark Knight. And they start like doing like the... 10 movie thing they do the 10 the following year because this year the five is so bad and they feel like they lose ratings because they don't nominate dark Knight. So then they go chasing that like 2008 is the beginning of the end for everything yeah anyway this has been our episode on the secret life of fees <laughs> buzz, buzz, buzz. buzz buzz yeah uh jordane thank you so much for coming back on the show of course of course also did this come out the same year as b movie 
Hmm. I think B movie uh, might be a year prior. B movie yes. comes out when I'm in college, so that's a America has B fever. Yes, <laughs> like, B fever. Anyway, right. <laughs> right you as have, we as we know from B movie, Honey just got funny. So like you know, know obviously, that. right. Uh, Jordan, people should listen to podcasts. Uh, Bad romance. Yeah, uh, that'd be cool. <laughs> you co-host with the great uh, Brown Win Ariel Isaac, and then Browse held high. You co-host with uh, Kyle, uh, your partner, and that's accessible on Patreon. Yes. Yeah, that's on Patreon. We need to. Kyle is very new to podcasts, so I'm going to show him how to like put it online so that other people can listen to it. But yeah, it's us, it's us talking about art house films. The first episode is on Antichrist. Um, the second episode is on Peter Greenaway's The Pillow Book. Yeah. So like, I think we might be doing High Rise next. Hey. So that'll be fun. I, I, I gotta say, High Rise is a movie I've been thinking about a, a lot recently. Kyle off screen saying he's pro High Rise. Kyle now on screen, <laughs> real quick. Um, I'm fetching pants. Don't mind me. He's, yeah, no he's just here for pants. I keep on thinking about High Rise while being in lockdown. That's all I'm gonna high say. High Rise, good. High Rise, yeah. good. High Rise, good. Um, and thank you for being on the show, Jordan. Of course. Um, and thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, Sometimes review, I feel subscribe. like you just don't want to end the show, Griffin. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like this is maybe the only form of social interaction I have uh, anymore. Well, I love to interact. It's yeah. great to interact. But David, the point is, mm. we gotta thank Lane Montgomery for our theme song. Sure. We got to thank Pat Reynolds and Joe Bowen for our artwork and and for co-producing the show and Rachel Jacobs for her editing assistance. And we got to tell people, we got to tell them to go to patreon.com backslash blank check where they can listen to Mission Impossible commentaries. And we got to tell them to go to reddit.com Griffin backslash please stop for some real nerdy shit. This is interminable. And David, David, look me in the eyes. Mm. Look me in the eyes, David. Mm -hmm. And as always, David, Mm. I gotta tell you that you got me straight tripping poop. No, God. Get out. How do I mute another person on Zoom? <laughs>